Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. In this episode, Greg shares a coaching tip on using exaggerated cues for lifting technique. Then we discuss a ton of new studies that came out this month. Topics include fat-free mass index, dietary nitrate, caffeine, sleep, grape Kool-Aid, and more. Then we have an interview with Dr. Brad Dieter, who tells us about research on artificial sweeteners, processed foods, and body fat set points. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. I'm joined by my temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles. Thank you for having me back on. Of course, yeah. So when you think Stronger by Science, you probably think Lil Yachty, Lil Uzi Vert, Lil Pump, Takeshi69, because we are in good company. We are now available on SoundCloud. Yeah, we, we saw how many of the truly defining artists of our generation got their start on that platform. A fair amount of our listeners had requested that we get on SoundCloud. We're still on virtually every podcast app out there, uh, plus YouTube and Spotify, but a fair amount of people wanted SoundCloud, so we are now joining the greats on SoundCloud uh, to try to take over the platform. Absolutely. We took over all the others, and we got one more kind of in our crosshairs here. Yes, sir. Okay, so to start the episode, Greg, you got some feats of strength this week. Yeah, so there haven't been that many huge meets recently, so this will be shorter than normal. Um, I feel like feats of strength is almost just becoming the Julius Maddox watch. We talked about him breaking the American record with his 723 bench in our last episode. More recently, he just posted on Instagram a set doing 610 for 8 with, it was kind of paused. Um, they were paused, but they were pauses that may not count in competition, if that makes sense. That is the heaviest set kind of in that, that, that's the most reps I've ever seen anyone do with in excess of 600 pounds. Eric Spoto did 605 for eight touch and go back in the day. Uh, and by back in the day, I mean like three years ago. Um, <laughs> and Kirill Sarachev. I believe he did somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 for five, super controlled, super solid, just like every other rep Sarachev has ever done, um, which he may have been able to push that out to eight, but he only did five. But man, anything over 600 is incredibly impressive. Um, that video of Julius Maddox hitting 610 for eight is wild, but the reason I'm putting it on this list is... I recommend you searching it out on Instagram because the guy taking the video of it is uh, equal parts hilarious and adorable because I don't think he realized that he was going for eight. So after like rep three or four, he just starts freaking out. Uh, He said, and I quote, what the fuck? Whoa, bro, excuse me. (laughs) But very, very excitedly. Uh, To be fair, he's not wrong. No, no. I mean, if if you happen upon someone with 600 loaded on the bar to bench and you have no idea that they're going to go for a set of eight, after number three, you would probably be freaking out too. But just just the, the pure joy of it, uh, of, of the camera person, um, really makes the video worth a watch. You had you had other feats of strength. Yeah. I, I do want to mention though, it's it's absolutely bonkers that he keeps showing up week after week. Like when you're already that good, you're not supposed to keep getting this much better well so i think i think it illustrates the principle of 
the people who are the best at anything getting a dis- a disproportionate amount of the attention. Yeah. Because dude's been strong for a long time. It was just Spoto was still competing and then Sarachev was still competing. I haven't seen anything out of either of them in a long time. I think Spoto's still sh- still training um but maybe coming back from injury and I don't even know that Sarachev is powerlifting anymore. Uh, the rare training videos of him that do pop up, he doesn't seem anywhere close to top shape. He's, um, he's involved in that Russian slap fighting league in, in some way, (laughs) shape or form. I've seen that. There was a video, there was a video maybe two or three weeks ago that everyone I know sent to me where one of the Russian slap fighters did look an alarming amount like me with long hair. <laughs> um, so if, if you sent me that, just know you weren't the only one. A lot of other people saw that resemblance. But Sarachev, I guess, was like the referee for that. So I, I think, you know, I think he's just out there living his best life. But yeah, anyway, so what I was saying is Julius Maddox has been one of the five or ten best benchers in the world for a long time. And... I think people just didn't know about him because unless you're the best in the world or someone who's like number two and looks like you're coming for the person who's currently the best in the world, a lot of people just fly under the radar. And I think, I mean, I would say at this point, he's absolutely the best, um, the best raw super heavyweight bencher currently competing and so I think until he took the crown, like people just weren't weren't paying attention to him. But I mean, now that he now that he is, dude's crazy impressive. Um, he he took an attempt that would have broken Sarachev's record at his last meet, and it looked pretty close. Like I, I think he'll have that record in the next six months to a year. All right, and so we got some other ones this week as well, right? Yeah, uh, Ashton Ruska um, competed. I believe this past weekend. So Ashton typically competes at 93 kilos or 205 pounds. He missed weight at this most recent meet, or maybe he just didn't cut weight. I'm not sure which. It wasn't a huge meet like nationals or worlds or anything like that. So he may have just not cut, but he weighed in at 208 um, or what would that be like 94 and a half kilos. So barely over the 93 limit. So he competed at 105, and as basically as light of a 105 as one could possibly be, he set the unofficial IPF world record, breaking uh, Weir Bicky's recent record. Uh, the reason I say unofficial is in the IPF, you can only set world records at meets with enough international level judges, which I believe is generally only national and world meets. So... Like I said, this wasn't nat- and maybe you can at the Arnold. I'm not sure about that, but but I think you can. Um, but yeah, so this was just a state meet. So he unofficially broke the record uh, at 105 as the lightest 105 one could possibly be. Totaled a nice smooth 900 kilos in the process. Uh, that's 1,984 pound total. Um, via a 705 squat, 457 bench, and 821 deadlift. This I would consider probably the second most impressive total of all time at that general body weight. So a few years ago, Jesse Norris totaled 2015 at 198. 
Um, the weight classes were recently changed, so now the weight class corresponding to the old 198 class is the 205 class. Um, but yeah, Jesse's currently the only person um, competing tested who's gone over 2,000 at around a 200 body weight. Ashton looks like he's he's very close to doing so. And like I said, I mean, like Weir Bicky is an incredibly good powerlifter in his own right. And here's a guy who weighs 25 pounds less, um, just competing a weight class up because he didn't cut to his normal weight class, breaking, setting an unofficial world record there. So that's that's also super, super impressive. Um, and then the last feat of strength I had this week was Tian Tao uh, in weightlifting. He clean and jerked 231 at 96 uh, in kind of a, a tune-up meet for the Olympics in 2020. Um, I should note that, and, and so 231 and 96 is 509 pounds at 211 pounds. I should note that the IWF redid their weight classes this past year. So, um, uh, weightlifting redoes their weight classes pretty frequently, um, similar to what the IPF did in powerlifting last year as well, um, where, I don't know if they explicitly say this, but the understood reason for why they change their weight classes around from time to time is basically when drug testing improves, they don't want people who realistically probably aren't drug free, but are having to beat more strenuous tests than folks of prior generations. They don't want them to have to compete against those prior world records, which were probably done uh, under under less rigorously tested circumstances. So they change the weight classes from time to time. So, and, so it's a little bit of like a world record reset, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with the old weight classes, the the world record was 233 at 94. So two kilos heavier at a two kilo lighter body weight by Sohrab Maradi from Iran. But yeah, Tian Tao coming very, very close to that old record of 233. Um there's probably going to be a lot of weightlifting records broken in the next couple of years just because of that weight class restructuring. But uh, but yeah, I mean, 231 at 96, even if it is not quite as good as the old record, still crazy impressive. Yeah. Now, so for today's episode, we wanted to, obviously we're going to get to some research later, but we wanted to do a little bit of the segment that we call Coach's Corner, where we talk about some more practical lifting-related information. And uh, we were chatting the other day about um, lifting cues, and you had mentioned uh, a, te- a technique that you've used in the past working with athletes where you mentioned that you give exaggerated cues, uh, and your, your terminology was in both directions. Um, yeah, what, what got us on that topic of conversation is I seem to remember, it was either you or Greg Schultz, one of you two said that you tried something that was like very, very slightly different, I believe, with your squat. And when you looked at it on video, you could barely see a difference or couldn't see a difference at all. But it felt a ton better. W- was that you or him? I think that was him. Okay. Um, but yeah, th- that's something that that's something that a lot of lifters experience. Um, and I think that I think a lot of lifters and coaches maybe a little bit over-reliant on video analysis. Um, like, I think most lifters have prob- have probably experienced this, where you lift a weight, it feels fucking terrible, 
and then you look at it, you look at the lift on video, and the video looks pretty good. Or, um, you know, the the opposite can occur as well. Like something may look kind of sketchy on video, but feel pretty decent when you do it. Or you make some sort of technique correction, and it feels a million times better. And then when you compare it to old technique videos, you're like, you know, it's like that Pam from the office meme. Corporate wants you to spot the difference between these two things. And there's no difference, except generally in the meme, it's two things that are very different. But yeah, you get the point. Yeah. Now, it's funny you bring that up because, you know, one of my clients that I work with online just Mm -hmm. this past week in their check-in sends me a video of a lift and, uh, and they're like, oh my God, you know, squats this week just felt like trash. And I'm like, well, here we go. <laughs> you know, yeah. I open up the file and it looked pretty damn good. And yeah. so it was one of those things where um, on the video, it wasn't jumping out. So then you have to pry a little deeper and say, didn't feel good in what way? Like, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then you start prying with additional questions. But, but anyway, you, you're, you, you kind of went off on, uh, when we were talking about this with Greg, you went off on like a little bit of a tangent about this queuing technique you've used in the past. Yeah. So the I, I think what most coaches do when they cue people is they're trying to cue someone to put them in the right general position, which for someone who doesn't understand a lift at all, they're they're just learning a lift. That is a very, very good way to cue someone. They don't know the positions they're supposed to be in. They don't know what it's supposed to feel like. So you cue them to get in generally good positions to start developing decent motor skills. For cueing lifters who know a lift pretty well already, and you're just trying to iron out a little technique issue, or you're um, like just generally trying to get something to feel better, or to get rid of a bad habit, something I found that works really, really well is giving bad cues. And what I mean by bad cues is if they're doing something wrong, you cue them to do it even wronger. Like they they know you're not telling them, oh no, good technique is actually just to do whatever you're doing, but do it even worse. Um, like if someone's weight is shifting really far forward on their feet when they squat, like if they feel their weight shifting forward, tell them squat with your weight as far forward on your feet as possible. You're not telling them that's the way you're supposed to squat. You're just cueing them to do that. Or um, the exact opposite thing, where if cue them in the direction you want them to go, but overcorrect. So if someone is, say, tucking their elbows way too much on bench, tell them, like, hey, try flaring your elbows as much as possible. The logic behind the first one, and and there's actually research to support this, um, actually in Volume 1, Issue 1 of Mass, uh, our our very inaugural issue, uh, I reviewed a study by Milanese et al. called The Effect of Two Different Correction Strategies on Snatch Technique in Weightlifting. Um, and what they termed that first method of if someone's making a mistake, cue them to overdo the mistake. They turned it the method of amplification of error. Um, and the logic behind that is that most people... Most people improve technique partially by rep- by repetition, but also through error identification and correction. And so if someone is lifting in a way that's going to decrease their performance, your, your goal is to make them really see what that is doing. And so if they're only messing something up a little bit, 
by getting them to fully lean into that mistake that they're making, that it's not just telling them what the consequence is, it's letting them feel it under load. And by under load, I'm not talking about doing one rep maxes with intentionally jacked up form. I'm talking, you know, sub-maximal stuff. But if, you know, if you load, load a significant amount, like say 50, 60% of your max, and have someone lift with intentionally suboptimal technique, um, exaggerated in such a way that they have to feel the consequence of it, then that helps them realize both consciously and subconsciously, like, oh, here's what's going wrong when I do this, and now here's what I can do to correct for it. And so it's it's letting their nervous system uh, kind of run that process of of finding and correcting the error instead of you as the coach saying, like, oh, no, shift your weight back one more inch on your foot. Like, that's probably not going to do anything. Yeah, and that's that's a really good point. I actually didn't make the connection between these two things. But I remember when I first started out uh, doing, like, in-person strength coaching, I was working with young athletes, and we I was really adamant about teaching them good squats, good deadlifts. And a lot of the other coaches in the room would, uh, with their athletes, they'd be doing virtually unloaded lifts mm-hmm. for in my uh opinion for inappropriately long periods of time mm-hmm. i mean it was just weeks and weeks of just like no load whatsoever and i've always felt the other way like i mean obviously i'm not going to take a novice and just say you know let's load plate after plate on but i wanted them to feel mm-hmm. when they were uh misgrooving i wanted them to feel when they had a technical flaw mm-hmm. and i felt like there was kind of a certain threshold of weight that we we needed to be above so they could actually experience what their bad technique is doing to them yeah exactly that makes sense yeah so it's the exact same logic but then when you apply it to someone who does already know the lift you know they they can obviously do the lift so just loading it probably isn't going to do much for you yeah if you wanted if you have higher risk tolerance than I do, um, you could probably just have them do rep maxes or max all the time, and it would accomplish the same basic thing. Um, just because going to failure or doing max load, whatever errors you're making, that's going to amplify the effect. But this method of of cueing into technical mistakes someone is making can help you accomplish the same thing, but with uh, with a more moderate load. And then the opposite approach of basically overcorrecting for for good technique. Um, so the example I gave is if someone is like way, way over tucking their elbows, you look at their bench from the side, their elbows are two inches in front of the bar, um, telling them like flare your elbows, like touch super high on your chest, that could accomplish one of two things. One is... They do actually do that. They they swing way back in the other direction. They flare their elbows a ton. That doesn't feel good either. And then it's like, okay, well, let's gradually tuck your elbows a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then let them feel for themselves, like, what's my happy medium here? Um, so it's kind of like, um, so let's say it's it's kind of like a rubber band, and the optimal tension for this rubber band is slightly more slack than it currently is. Um, so let's say like the circumference of the rubber band when it's just like sitting on your desk is three inches and ideal would be for it to be three and a half inches. If you want it to get to three and a half inches, if you just stretch it out to three and a half inches and then let it go, it's going to snap right back to three inches. To put some more slack in it, you would need to 
you know, overstretch it. And then when you let it go, now it may be a little bit slacker and get back to three and a half inches. And that's now it's like normal tension, kind of the same thing. So if, you know, if you want someone like, let's say someone's, uh, hips are shooting way, way back when they squat, um, instead of just saying like, Hmm, well, they're shooting a little bit too far back. Let's, let's try to keep them another inch under the bar. That's not going to do anything. So massively overcorrected and say like, you know, I don't want your hips to move forward or back any at all. I want you to shove them as far forward as you can from the very start of the movement. Well, then when you do start loading them more and their hips do gradually start drifting back again, now hopefully they'll find that spot you actually wanted them to be in in the first place. Um, so that's one thing that can happen. The other thing that can happen is whatever you cue them to do, they can't actually do it, but they wind up doing what you want them to accomplish. So for example, the, the classic cue when people squat and deadlift, uh, I don't know if it's quite as popular now, but back in the day, we'd always say like, keep your weight on your heels. And the thing is, you don't actually want your weight on your heels when you squat and deadlift. Um, but if someone would have a tendency to get their weight really far forward to the balls of their feet, if you tell them, put your weight on your heels, then what actually ends up happening is it just shifts back to midfoot where it should be. So, you know, you're, you're not cueing them to do what you actually want them to do. You're over cueing them such that by overemphasizing a particular thing, they wind up in the position you actually want them to be in. So yeah, just a, just a practical little coaching, coaching cue, um, or, or coaching tip. I think people focus too much on cueing what they actually want to be done, um, versus giving cues that will help athletes accomplish that for themselves. And, and like I said, that, that first, that first method of cueing of, you know, just actually telling people what you want them to accomplish, that does work reasonably well for someone who is learning a new lift, but generally that stops working quite as well when uh, someone who knows the lifts pretty well already winds up either with a lift just not feeling good or dealing with an intransigent technique issue. Yeah, and I, I like how you put that because ultimately as a coach, the goal of the cue is not to be a logically sound statement. The goal of the cue is to elicit a particular movement response. You know Perfect. what I mean? And so yeah. you have to give yourself license to, um, again, like, like you were saying, overcorrect or put them in a position as a uh, kind of a learning tool so that you can work toward that, uh, the intended response. You exactly. Know? Yeah. All right. So this is a segment that we've done previously called Research Roundup. And the general premise here is going through some recent research that came out in the last month. Sometimes you see a few studies or a couple studies that are on similar topics. And, and we like to go through them and just let listeners know, hey, here's some cool new stuff that came out and, and kind of makes sense of a few studies on the same topic. Uh, so one of the topics that had a couple papers this month was fat-free mass index. And uh, that's a topic that's important to both of us. Um, I, I know you've been talking about fat-free mass index for ages. Um, I published a paper on it uh, somewhere between one and six years ago. I forget when that thing came out. I feel like it was 2015, 2016. That sounds suitable. Sure. Yeah. That would make sense. Um, so this month there were two papers. One uh, paper was looking at females, the other looking at males. Full disclosure, the study involving uh, college-age females, I was 
on the paper. It was from my, my former lab group at UNC. The other study was by a completely separate lab group, which is coincidental because like the titles of the papers are almost like exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But um, in any case, a couple parallel studies that happen to be going on around the same time. The cool thing about the one looking at college-age females is that there's really not a ton of fat-free mass research fat-free mass index research that was carried out in females. A lot of it just tends to be male-dominated so far. Um, so without getting too far into detail, I mean, it's it's one of the those studies where it's like no one's looked at it, so let's get some kind of observational data out there. Like what do the ranges look like in college-age females that do these different activities? Um, so, you know, there's not a lot of like uh, remarkably... Uh, shocking conclusions from such a paper because it really is just about publishing data and getting some reference ranges out there as kind of a a jumping off point mm-hmm. for this for this body of literature that uh hopefully we'll we'll start to see more uh investigations looking at this metric in uh in female athletes um so really to me one of, one of the cool things about this paper is that there's um there's some nice box and whisker plots in the paper that kind of show ranges for people involved with different types of athletic activities. Um, so, you know, there's gymnastics, lacrosse, cross country. As you'd imagine, the cross country team had, had uh, relatively lower uh, fat-free mass index values than the other teams. Um, and there were some, you know, a, a lot of the teams, the, the median values, um, generally around 17, 18, mm-hmm. some of the upper quartile value values, just kind of eyeballing the figure looks like they might be in the 18 to 19 range. Mm-hmm. And there, there were select individuals that were, were up in the twenties. And, and so there were, uh, at least a, a couple, but it looks like maybe three or so that were between 20 and 22. And then there was one that looks like it was over, over 25. Yeah. It was 25 and a half. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a, that's a really impressive number for yeah. a female athlete. That's pretty wild. Now there was a paper this month on fat-free mass index in, uh, what they call a diverse sample of male college athletes. And what they mean by diverse is that there are quite a few different sports represented, uh, within the sample. And uh, this paper came out of Chad Kirksick's lab at uh, Lindenwood University. And one of the cool things about it is, you know, the paper I published on fat-free mass index a couple years back, um, we got a little bit of pushback because some of the values were higher than people expected. You know, um, it, I don't know how many people actually really hold on to this belief, but there are like rumors that 25 is kind of this hard cutoff for what, you know, the kind of the high end limit of a fat-free mass index value for a drug-free male. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I haven't talked to a lot of people who really hold that to be a, a firm rule. Have you like, is, do people really feel that way? So here's what I'll say. I've not, I've not come across anyone who's super militant about that in person but I've come across hundreds of people who are super militant about that online. Yeah, because that's like I know it's a thing and I know a lot of people post about it. But every time I talk to somebody about it, we usually agree on more than we disagree. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So um, in any case, so th- this particular paper, they had athletes doing uh, baseball, cross country, football, rugby, water polo, everything in between. So it was over 200 total athletes. Um, I believe they use DEXA for their fat-free mass index calculation. Is that correct? I think so. I think so. And so 
much in line with what our group found a couple years ago, uh, there were a substantial number of athletes with a fat-free mass index uh, above 25, and in some cases, well above 25. You know, it looks just eyeballing the figures, uh, quite a few people that were above 27 up in the 28 range, and then I think the highest was just just a little bit shy of 31 even. And so I, I think what I was getting at the general principle that it's hard to have a value of 25 and be like 5% body fat. I think most people agree with that. Like Mm -hmm. you got to be pretty special. If you're going to be natural five or 6% body fat and have a fat free mass index value of 25. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're in very rarefied air if that's who you are. I'm of, I'm the type of person who doesn't immediately translate that into an accusation. (laughs) <laughs> like I usually like to give people the benefit of the doubt um, as long as it doesn't make me look totally stupid. Um, but like w- what you tend to find with fat free mass index is to some extent it scales with body fat. Um, and it also, you're going to find it. You're going to find higher values in people that are genetically quite gifted. Mm-hmm. So the more that we do these types of studies and get access to people who have, assistance with their training and nutrition because they're college athletes and especially when it comes to like popular sports like football we start to see athletes that are they're born for this stuff Mm -hmm. to be big and strong and muscular um i i think one of the reasons that we saw 25 as this limit is because a lot of the you know the, the main study indicating that was not in a group of lifters you would assume to be genetically particularly gifted yeah it was just it was it was a sample from a gym in Boston and a gym in LA and the only inclusion criteria were that you had to be over 16 years old and i believe you had to have reported either 6 months or 2 years of lifting it was one of the two but it wasn't it wasn't a particularly high bar right and so in this case we're talking about if you think of what are the inclusion criteria of being a competitive collegiate defensive lineman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The inclusion criteria mean you're like fast, remarkably powerful and 300 pounds. Yeah. And then because you are that person, now you're on campus and you have access to very qualified trainers, typically a very qualified nutrition staff, often, uh, support in terms of accessing good food. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of benefit to that when it comes to having a high fat-free mass index value. Yeah. And so, you know, you see papers like the one that, that my group published a few years back and then this one now. And it, it to me, it's a little, I, I don't see the reason why people are like justify why there are values over 25. I mean, so here, here's what it comes down to for me. Um, the original paper, like I said, their their sample was either 74 or 77 uh, drug-free athletes. And so if you're attempting to establish a limit for any human physical characteristic, you're going to need a hell of a lot more than 70-something people to find that. Even if, even if you're looking for people in like a really targeted population... So even if you just got a random sample of 74 NBA players who already skew incredibly tall, 
you're not going to find the tallest person who ever lived. You're not going to establish the limits of human height. Or if you, say, went to uh, an international track meet and got all of the 100-meter sprinters and said, I want to establish a limit of human speed. Unless you got Usain Bolt at his peak in your sample, you're not going to find it. So just getting a sample of 70-something random lifters from a couple gyms, yeah, there were probably a few people in that sample who were very, very well-trained, but that's not going to be a sample that's adequate for answering the research question of what is the absolute limit that someone could possibly achieve drug-free. There's a lot to keep in mind when you're considering, like, what's the highest fat-free mass index I could possibly hope for? Um, And I, I think we ought to generally, as a collective group, Maybe chill with all the the accusations on people that are like twenty five and a half impossible. Yeah, you know, like come on. Yeah, I mean, because because the thing is, I, I think what you said before is accurate that very few people probably can achieve a fat free mass index of twenty five while being fairly lean. But the thing you need to keep in mind there is there there is what we call in science an ass load of people lifting weights. And so let's say one in a thousand can clear 25. I think it's probably more than that, but let's just say it's one in a thousand. Let's say it's one in 10,000. If there's 10 million people lifting and one in 10,000 can have a fat-free mass index over 25, then that's still a thousand people running around out there with a fat-free mass index over 25. If it's closer to like, you know, one in a hundred, that's still rare. But now we're talking about tens of thousands of people who could who could clear that theoretical hurdle so the it's not sufficient evidence to make an accusation that someone is committing a federal felony (laughs) to say well what this person has done is unlikely (laughs) because when you extrapolate some an unlikely single event across a huge population now it becomes virtually a certainty that someone can do it And are you sure enough that it's not this person you're accusing that you're willing to... So here, here's the illustration I like to use. Like, if you want to see a picture of a skinny person online and just automatically comment like, well, that person's been smoking crack. Like, if, if you, one, if you would do that, you're a piece of shit. (laughs) Two, that is functionally identical to seeing a picture of someone who's either like really jacked or lifts a lot of weight and saying like, yep, they're on drugs. Like it's the same thing. Yeah. Now another topic that had a couple papers this month was dietary nitrate. And that is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because that was uh, one of the key pieces of my dissertation work. Now um, one of the papers was a, a review paper about dietary nitrate, nitrate and physical performance and it was fine. <laughs> you know, it's another narrative review that just kind of says, hey, here's this growing body of research on nitrate. But the thing that jumped out at me about this review is that more than ever, it looks like the reviews are starting to drift away from conventional aerobic endurance exercise with nitrate and, and drift closer toward sprint power and strength type outcomes. And so a, a, a separate piece of literature. Um, there, there's a researcher named Coggan, C-O-G-G-A-N. Uh, and that researcher has 
released a few papers over the last couple of years showing that it, it's quite possible that dietary nitrate does in fact have a direct effect on the muscle that is causing enhanced forced output. Um, so that's something that um, if you check out the article on the site, strongerbyscience.com, I wrote a big article about nitric oxide boosters. I go into a little more detail about the... the um, it's uncertain, but there's a decent possibility that nitric oxide booster supplements might be useful to a strength athlete, someone who's interested in lifting weights, uh, because we're starting to uncover some direct effects of nitrate uh, on muscle contractile function, which is pretty cool. Um, now, one of the big challenges about turning that into a useful piece of information is how do we actually get a consistently useful dose of nitrate and so that brings me to the second paper on nitrate that came out this month it's called what is in your beet juice nitrate and nitrite content of beet juice products marketed to athletes now what they do is they took samples from 45 different lots of 24 different beetroot juice products and these were from 21 different companies that's pretty thorough yeah i didn't realize there were there were that many products on the market yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they, they made a pretty broad sweep. Um, and what they were doing is basically saying, okay, let's buy these products and let's check out the nitrate content and see what we get. And uh, so the, the, the real key findings here is there was a pretty big coefficient of variation uh, within the same product. Okay, and that was about 30% plus or minus 26%, the range being 2 to 83. That's so, crazy. So the moral of the story there is even with the same product, wildly <laughs> discrepant nitrate content. And if you're using the product for the nitrate, which you are, that's a problem. Yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> but that's within product. Now we're talking about comparing one product to another. And they found uh, about a 50-fold range in nitrate Ooh, content. Buddy between the lowest and the highest product. Um, of these, I think they said 24 different products, only five of them consistently had a nitrate dose that was greater than or equal to five millimoles, which you could more or less consider to be like the bare minimum of what you'd be looking for for an ergogenic effect. So to be clear, that 50-fold range is insane well, some had enough, and some some just massively overdosed it. <laughs> no, that's no. that's a small handful had barely enough, and then at least someone was giving you two percent of what you actually needed. Right? Yeah, it was basically like you were. There were a couple products that were a little higher than you'd think, mm -hmm. um, and I, I, part of that was because they didn't. The researchers noted in a couple instances they had to kind of infer what the suggested dose was because mm -hmm. the labeling was was pretty vague. Very cool. Uh, but th there were a couple that were a little higher than you'd think, but not by a ton. Yeah. Um, it's certainly nothing that would be hazardous to your health. But but no, a as you're mentioning, the, the overwhelming concern was a lot of people sold you nitrate that did not have much nitrate. Um, damn it. So yeah, th there was a lot of products with just almost none or just an amount that you just couldn't be bothered to mm -hmm. to care about and frankly even five millimoles is if i were taking nitrate from a supplement i'd probably be shooting for more in the eight millimole range mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's a as i always tell people with nitrate supplements it's a pretty 
pretty not great state of affairs if yeah. you're interested in going out and getting a reliable product. Um, so here's the thing that's tricky, though, is I often tell people, well, just get it from food. Um, and there is a study by uh, Por- Porcelli or Porcelli et al., 2016, where they, using food sources, uh, fruit and vegetable sources of nitrate, they 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 basically gave people a, a daily nitrate dose of 8.2 millimoles per day, which is about 500 milligrams. And uh, they, they did find that to be an effective dose from food. Um, but even in the food supply, nitrate content can be quite unpredictable. And so uh, there's a study by De Gonzalez et al. in 2015. And this was a really cool study. I really love this one. But they went out to... Um, grocery stores in five different cities chicago dallas la new york and raleigh um hell yeah we made it (laughs) uh and what they did was they just grabbed conventional produce off the shelf and tested the nitrate and some of the surprising numbers in that study the average nitrate content of spinach in new york was 564 parts per million in dallas it was over 4900 so 564 versus 4,900 as the average. That's wild. Yeah. Now, the lowest spinach content they got from New York was 65 parts per million, and the highest they got in LA was 8,000 parts per million. That's ridiculous. So one of the things that makes me a little bit... I hesitate to get... to just pile on these supplement companies too aggressively because like even in the food supply... like. Unless you're being really thorough on the the supplement manufacturing end, which mm-hmm. they should be, yeah. to be clear. But but like with a lot of ingredients, if you saw that level of variation, you'd be like, you guys are absolute monsters, like mm-hmm. you crooks. Um, it's possible that, I mean, they certainly should be more thorough, but even in, in conventional produce, it, it's tough to know exactly how much nitrate is going to be in the, the produce that you purchase. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, there are some good products like Beat It Sport in the study um, that we started talking about where, where they actually measured all those different products. Uh, Beat It Sport did quite well mm-hmm. on their testing. So um, that's a pretty solid product out there. It is a bit pricey, um, which is... Yeah, didn't you say it's either like a buck fifty or $2 a dose? Uh, I believe it's $3 a dose Jeez. if you buy them in, in, in like a big package. That's wild. And you could make the argument that you probably ought to have two doses pre-workout instead of one. So that that's a huge factor for that. Yeah. Um, so what I normally tell people with nitrate is there it's there's a good possibility that there is some ergogenic benefit to be obtained there. Your best bet, in my opinion, currently, until some of these companies do a better job standardizing their nitrate content is to emphasize higher nitrate foods in the diet and basically put your money on the law of averages and assume that like every time you get spinach, it's not going to be 65 parts per million. Unless you live in New York. Yeah, if you live in New York. Then it's bad regardless. RIP your damn arteries. Yeah, you guys really got to figure out your spinach situation in New York. Very disappointing. Very disappointing. But no, I mean, I, I still think that one of the things I think is the benefit of going with the food sources, like even though there's variability, like if you're eating a bunch of high nitrate foods, you're going to get some nitrate. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, what I always tell people is 
let's say you eat a a high nitrate diet in principle, but you actually got shorted on your nitrate content a little bit. The downside of that was you just accidentally ate a bunch of celery and spinach and arugula and a bunch of crap that's going to make you live forever. Mm -hmm. So like if that's the downside of of your, uh, your dosing strategy, you're going to be all right. Makes it's sense. like all the side effects make you live longer. So yeah. probably a good move. Fair enough. Uh, we, we had just talked about caffeine and caffeine actually did uh, pop up in the literature this month. And I feel like there's a lot of caffeine stuff coming out these days. It's like every month there, there's mm-hmm. quite a few caffeine studies coming out. But the thing that's nice is they're doing cool work. It's, yeah. it's not like when like creatine back in the oh, day God. got in this groove where hey, uh, creatine increases reps to fatigue on bench press still. And it was like just a million of those. Yeah. And I'm, did I do a study myself on creatine and reps to fatigue? You bet I did. <laughs> so that that's me uh, absolutely dissing myself in front of a microphone. But in any case, uh, a lot of the caffeine studies that are coming out these days are they're answering cool questions. Yeah. Um, so we've talked in the past. I don't want to talk too much about caffeine because this is going to become like the Stronger by Science Caffeine podcast at some point. But we talked about how there's some genetic factors that seem to be related to caffeine. Um, and certainly we know that there's genetic variation with the uh, the enzymes that metabolize caffeine. But the question is, what are the ramifications of that? And so I think we're going to see a lot more of these studies coming out. Um one of the studies this month, uh, basically what they did was they looked at a big sample of people. I think the the data set was, uh, I think the data were uh, collected in the Sao Paulo area. Mm-hmm. And it was a big data set. And what they were looking at was these certain genetic determinants that make you more likely to have high blood pressure. And they were trying to see if there's any relationship uh, between how caffeine might affect outcomes in that case. Um and, and what this study found was there was apparently a gene diet interaction. And what they found was that if you were proposed, uh, uh, um, if you were predisposed to high blood pressure due to these genetic, uh, variants, um, caffeine seemed to seem to interact with that in, in the case that, uh, being predisposed to high blood pressure and consuming relatively higher amounts of coffee was, was generally not great for your, mm-hmm. for your long-term blood pressure outcomes. Um, now it's really important to highlight, like I said, we, we're going to see a lot of these over the next 10 years. Uh, we've seen a few already. We've seen papers looking at how genes affect, uh, performance responses to caffeine, how they affect, uh, various cardiovascular outcomes, even some stuff looking at bone density outcomes. And right now the, uh, the consensus is that we don't have one. It's it's pretty mixed research at this time. Um, I think generally speaking, when it comes to the genetic component of caffeine metabolism, if you had to lean one way or the other, like if you submitted a genetic test and had to cross your fingers and hope for one, it would appear tentatively, you'd probably like to be a fast metabolizer mm-hmm. rather than a slow. Um, but, you know, we're, we're still just starting to kind of piece together how genes interact with our various responses to caffeine. And so in this case, it looked like, uh, I should clarify, a lot of those papers were looking at the uh, 
genetic inheritance of the CYP1A2 enzyme, which is responsible for caffeine uh, metabolism largely. There's a couple other ones like the uh, the Adora. There's one or two of those that that are, are genes associated with caffeine. Uh, I think those are with the adenosine receptor, mm-hmm. which is how caffeine works. Um, in this particular study, the genes they were looking at were specifically tied to high blood pressure. So these were not caffeine-related genes per se. But again, what they found was if you were predisposed to high blood pressure due to your genetics, in that scenario, having the high, ca- high caffeine intake from coffee uh, appeared to be a somewhat negative thing, which is a bummer. Yeah, that sucks. Is it going to stop me from drinking caffeine? Let me rephrase that. Nothing's going to stop me from drinking caffeine. <laughs> now, another study came out, uh, caffeine supplementation, ergogenic in both high and low caffeine responders. And this was an interesting one. So they were looking at uh, trained soccer players, and they distinguished them as either high or low caffeine responders. And the way they did it was interesting. They basically gave them a dose of caffeine and looked at a variety of responses, including uh, their resting blood pressure, their plasma glycerol, uh, non-esterified fatty acid, and epinephrine response to a caffeine dose. Um, and basically what they said was if caffeine elicited large responses in those various outcomes, we're going to consider you a high responder. And if not, we're going to consider you a low responder. So uh, I feel like this is, I feel like this is essentially just doing the exact same thing as the studies that have looked at people who are habituated to caffeine or naive to it. Pretty it's much. just stratifying them based on something else. Because if you're habituated to the effects of caffeine, that is going to affect, or that that will affect most of the things they looked at. So the more habituated you are, probably the less effect caffeine will have on blood pressure, less effect it'll have on glycerol, etc. Uh, certainly the smaller the effect will be that it has on plasma epinephrine levels. So on its face, I kind of like this design better because theoretically people build up different levels of tolerance to caffeine, but you're primarily interested in whether the physiological effects of that tolerance negate the effects of caffeine on its its ergogenic effects or er, ergogenic benefits on exercise. So this is basically just saying, well, we're going to cut out the middleman. Who cares if you're habituated to it or not? We want to see if you have a physiological response that looks like you're super habituated to it or not. So I, I think it's I, I like this. I think it's it's stratifying based on something that makes more sense. Yeah. So basically, as, as you're you're saying, if you were habituated, then you would probably have uh, pretty minimal responses in these different outcomes. So that that probably is a better way. I mean, a lot of times with the habituation literature, they kind of give a little questionnaire, uh, try to get some kind of self-reported assessment of whether or not they consume a lot of caffeine. And I, I think the I think we put a little too much faith in exactly how accurate those are mm-hmm. how accurate those are in terms of distinguishing between someone who's truly physiologically habituated and somebody who isn't um but in any case what they found in the case of this study is that the caffeine improved aerobic endurance and neuromuscular performance and it did not really seem to be affected by whether or not they were in that uh, what they call the high responder or low responder group and so uh, what this tells us is, 
as you were alluding to, it kind of fits in with a lot of that habituation literature on caffeine, uh, which would suggest that generally speaking, if we stratify a group by whether or not they're habituated or naive, we don't seem to see uh, really substantial differences in terms of uh, their performance response to the caffeine. Mm -hmm. Now, longitudinal studies do show a little bit of performance habituation over time, uh, mm -hmm. which, which you reviewed recently in mass. But, um, but this is another study showing that even though uh, some of these resting parameters might vary in response to caffeine, uh, caffeine's its track record when it comes to improving performance seems to be looking um, pretty strong the more that we do some of these studies. Yeah, and, and the, the question always is when you talk about caffeine habituation is like, is it having an ergogenic effect or once you've become habituated to it, is it just keeping you at baseline and you would otherwise have like big performance decrements possibly due to withdrawal symptoms without it? And from where I'm sitting, I don't really care. <laughs> like, yeah. regardless of whether you're habituated to it or not, you perform better on caffeine than not on caffeine. And if you want to potentially resensitize yourself to the effects of caffeine, the first place I would look at cutting back on caffeine intake probably wouldn't be around my workout. Yeah. Now, a cool thing about that caffeine study is it, it uh, ties in well with the next kind of cluster or pairing of studies that came out this month, which we're looking at statistical issues and methodology. So uh, there's a, a paper called Issues in the Determination of Responders and Non-Responders in Physiological Research. Um, and there have been a few papers that have come out on that recently in the exercise science literature. And Frankly, I don't think we're anywhere near a consensus on exactly how that should be done. Mm -hmm. But uh, I do think it's important that a lot of statisticians and, and kind of methods-focused people are at least thinking about it. Because the more that you look back at some of these studies that have kind of boldly separated into these two dichotomous groups, mm -hmm. whenever you see that, it's really important to look at how they made that determination. And even just... You know, aside from all the complex ways to deal with variation within a sample, just at face value, does it feel okay? You yeah. know what I mean? Well, so, I'm, I mean, here's the, the... I think that the usage of the term non-responder in science helps illustrate just how large of a role tradition plays in science. So... If someone publishes the first paper in an area, subsequent papers are probably going to use similar terminology to that that was coined in the first paper, likely going to use similar statistical methods. At least the first few papers are probably going to use pretty similar study designs. And some of that stuff can stick around for a long time. So to the best of my knowledge, either the first or one of the first people to use the term non-responder, uh, at least in terms of resistance training research, was Bauman from uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And if he wasn't the first, I know his papers looking at non-responders were certainly very big and well-cited. So that's where I think a lot of that tradition came from. Um, I was talking to one of his PhD students a couple years ago, um, because I was considering applying to UAB for grad school. 
Um, and I was like, yeah, oh yeah, like I like Bauman's research, really interesting. I liked his non-responder stuff. And his student came back to me and he's like, yeah, he hates that terminology now. Like he wishes he wouldn't have used it. And virtually every person that I've talked to who either has worked in a lab where non-responder research has come out or has published research looking at non-responders, they all hate the terminology. But it's one of those things that has been used so much in the literature, it's just kind of expected that if you're if you're looking at, you know, if you do some sort of intervention and some people don't see robust adaptations to whatever that intervention is, you call them non-responders. And no one likes that term, but we haven't just stopped using it at some point. Yeah, when it comes down to in a study looking at responder, non-responder, statistically there are ways to do it. Um, I really like how it, I think it makes sense in the creatine literature because it's it's quite identifiable by a tissue sample. You yeah. know, like, like we can, that's a thing. Yeah, and, and, and that's, the, that's the discriminating factor there. Right, so someone yeah. may absolutely be a non-responder to creatine they just maybe have naturally high creatine levels taking more creatine doesn't increase their creatine stores it doesn't do anything for them the response may be that they excrete more creatine but that's not the sort of response you would say they've responded to creatine whereas with exercise like everyone responds to exercise it's just a question of how you respond to it 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 is going to cause some sort of adaptation definitely and uh the thing I always caution people about, I've seen this in papers, which is why I, I tell people like, whenever you see non-responder or responder in a paper, like immediately go to the methods and try to figure out what the hell that means. Yeah, it's, it's because, talking like, about one characteristic. Right, and, and like I have seen papers where, honest to God, they just say, we took the top half of responses, just the people who did really, really well. Mm-hmm. We, we categorized them as responders and everybody else as non-responders. We did a special subgroup analysis, and it turns out this supplement works really well in responders. And it's like... That's the most intellectually disingenuous shit I've ever heard. You, you can't just take everybody that happens to be above the mean yeah, <laughs> and say, yeah. well, well, in them it works, because you should have about half of them below the mean. Yeah, if, you know? if, we, if we take something that does jack shit and just happen to have half of the people just due to fucking measurement error wind up with responses greater than 0% better than they were before and just rerun an analysis on them. Like, yeah, the the minimum number in your sample is going to be greater than zero. Therefore, like, whatever you're looking at will be different from zero. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah, I've seen that a couple of times. It's, it's not super common, but... You know, I think it's good that some of these papers are coming out so that we're going to have more of a conversation in the field of like, we need to really figure out if we don't have a biological obvious criteria for distinguishing, Mm -hmm. if we're going to do this thing mathematically, we need to figure out what our criteria are and and really get on board with that. I mean, it honestly just gets me a little hot under the collar that something like that cleared peer review. Well, (laughs) it happens. Because that's... That's fucking egregious. Yeah, it wasn't good. Yeah, but it, it was like one of those things. That, it was just a very clearly arbitrary set non-response threshold where they just said, well, 
what would be convenient to look at? <laughs> and that's where the line got drawn. Jesus. Now, I, I don't want to go on and on about stats, but there was a really cool paper. Um, it's called The Fragility of Statistically Significant Results from Clinical Nutrition Randomized Controlled Trials. And this isn't like totally in everybody's wheelhouse that listens to the podcast in terms of content area, but there's like one punchline for this study that is just worth its weight in gold. Really valuable lesson here. So they took, uh, they took 37 studies. They did this very rigorous selection process to make sure they had studies that fit their criteria. Mm-hmm. All these studies were looking at dichotomous outcomes. So with, they had these like two different groups and like, you know, the, the outcome measurement either, you know, happened or it didn't that's what did you get this disease did you not did you die did you not exactly yeah did you meet x weight loss threshold or did you not stuff like that yeah so dichotomous outcomes and what they were looking at is something called the fragility index and uh, basically what it does is it indicates the minimum number of patients whose status would have to change in order to basically reverse the outcome of the uh the analysis Mm -hmm. so like if one person who uh, had the condition didn't, mm-hmm. if one person switched over and then all of a sudden your significant finding became non-significant, the fragility index would be one. Mm-hmm. If just one person went the other way, your finding disappears and according to old school scientists is no longer meaningful or interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's basically what they were looking at is how many individual subjects in these studies had to go the other way for the outcome of the study to be reversed, Mm -hmm. the entire conclusion. Um, And so what they found was from the studies they looked at, uh, the value was lower than or equal to two in three quarters of the studies that they looked at, which means, again, from that literature they sampled, and they started with a big kind of cross-section of the nutrition literature. How, how did they come up with their sample of studies they looked at? Uh, they had a whole like flow chart of inclusion criteria. And okay, all that. but but it was it was a standardized process. Yeah, it was a systematic okay. search of the literature. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. good. And so yeah, so think of that: seventy-five percent of the trials, if one or two subjects had gone the other direction, the finding would have been reversed. So we've talked about p curves on this podcast before, which I think makes us the only like non stats podcast to ever talk about p curves. I feel very comfortable that that's the case, yeah. But I, I feel like this is kind of doing, kind of approaching the same thing. Um, oh yeah, but for yeah. In- individual studies instead of an entire body of literature. Like if you p curved those fucking studies, you know that p curve is going to look fucking awful oh yeah because yeah i mean these studies i'm going completely from the gut here kind of shooting from the hip but if your fragility index is one or two uh, like for 75 percent of the literature like those p-values are probably all 0.04 yeah i'm i'm not going to make any accusations about any individual study within those three quarters but you have to know some sort of statistical fuckery went on in a decent number of those papers where they just looked at it and they're like, well, you know, we screened this one person into our study, but now that I think about it, did they really belong? I wonder what our P value is if we exclude them. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like another meaningful thing here is that when you lose patients to follow up in a study or, or subjects to follow up, 
there's kind of an ongoing debate about like, well, do you do your analysis with the people that finish the study? Or, or what do you do with these people that didn't finish? Where mm-hmm. do you categorize them? How do you factor them into that analysis? Uh, and so uh, in one third of the studies they looked at, the fragility index was lower than the number of patients that were lost due to follow-up. And so it, that's another thing where that statistical decision of how you deal with that would have completely inverted the outcome of the study, mm-hmm. theoretically. So yeah. um, w- whenever we tell people, like, you never assume that a single study is really telling you the entire story for a body of literature Mm -hmm. this kind of concept comes to mind of within a single analysis the the small collection of things that could happen Mm -hmm. within a single study to completely invert your conclusion Mm -hmm. that's why it's so critical not to see one study outcome and say well that's below my arbitrary threshold of 0.05 and say Glad we figured that out. Yeah. And I mean, uh, another thing that I'll add to that is one of the reasons why I think a lot of folks tell people like, ah, you know, you you should leave reading the literature and interpreting it to the experts is because like, we know that this shit goes on. We know that oftentimes when you look at a paper, the findings probably aren't as clean as the authors would like to present them as maybe a false positive they may have done something untoward to get the results uh that they got and there there are some little things you can look at that might be hints that something like that went on but one of the things that you dear listener can take home which is super super easy to do is if a paper reports p-values your confidence in the results should probably scale with how close or how far those p-values are from 0.05 if you see something where, you know, it's 0.047, you know, they, not making any accusations, the authors very much could have done everything on the up and up, but that's probably a pretty iffy finding. If something's 0.0001, it's it's probably legit. Like, that probably would be a study you could cite as evidence of something, would absolutely be good if it was replicated, but that's probably going to be a durable finding Versus something where, like, the confidence interval is, you know, like, all up in Zero's face. Like, as close as it could possibly be without crossing it. Yeah. And now another tool you can use to make inferences about whether or not you care about a finding (laughs) would be the effect size, right? (laughs) So, it's not just about the p-value. We want to know how big of an effect did we actually see. And uh, one of the things that comes up, I think every month we, we talk about this. Uh, when we kind of survey the new batch of studies that came out and this month was as bad, if not worse than any, but we're, we're talking about effect sizes here. Mm-hmm. And honestly, right now, if you were to ask me, Hey, Eric, um, what can you tell me about interpreting effect sizes? When I read the exercise science literature, I would tell you when you come across an effect size number, I want you to write it down on a piece of paper. I want you to put that paper in an envelope. I want you to take it to your fireplace. I want you to burn it because that means nothing to me. That's a hot take. It means nothing to me because the number of effect sizes we see in this body of literature that are either wrong objectively, just we don't know where that number came from, but that ain't it, or wildly misinterpreted. Yeah. It's, you just, I, I don't know what to do with it. 
So for once, I'm going to say I think that take was a little too hot. I no. What, what I'm I hot. what I would instead do is write it down on a piece of paper, look and see if the data was reported in tables <laughs> anywhere, and make sure it was calculated correctly. Fine. And then if it wasn't, throw it in a fire. But <laughs> I'm hold- just so sick of it, man. Dude, so what What Eric is getting at is... So most of the effect sizes that are reported in the exercise science literature are what's called a Cohen's D. Um, sometimes you'll get a Hedges G, but they're effectively the same thing. A Hedges G just also applies a correction for small sample research. Uh, to make it a little bit more conservative. But uh, a Cohen's D effectively answers the question for you, by how many standard deviations do these two things differ, or by how many standard deviations did this particular thing change? And so, for example, if you have a sample of people whose average bench press is 100 kilos with a standard deviation of 20 kilos, and their bench presses improve by 10 kilos on average, that would be a Cohen's D effect size of 0.5. So you have a 10, a 10 kilo improvement divided by a 20 kilo standard deviation. You can say on average, these subjects improved by about half a standard deviation. And that's how it's supposed to be done. But how is it often done, Eric? Um, what's often done is rather than dividing by the standard deviation of the measurement, they will divide by the standard deviation of the change. And that's problematic for two reasons. So first of all, at a very basic conceptual level, you are dividing by two very different things, which means that you have to interpret those values extremely differently, even from just a very theoretical perspective. We are now looking at essentially two completely different concepts. The other problem is that when you divide by the standard deviation of the change, it tends to be a much smaller number. So the result of that is a very inflated effect size. Now, if you look at the literature pertaining to Cohen's D, you find that Cohen's D is really a a family of values. There are many different subtypes and many different ways to calculate those subtypes. So it's not objectively wrong to use some form of Cohen's D that divides by the standard deviation of the change. Um, but my problem is when people do that and they make no effort to label it as such, and furthermore, they actually often interpret it as if it was a very different type of Cohen's D. And so what, what they end up doing is saying, wow, this was an extremely large change without factoring in the the very obvious um, consideration that they divided by an unusually small number. Yeah, so just to make it clear for the listeners, so going back to that example, if group benches 100 plus or minus 20 kilos, their bench press improves by 10 kilos plus or minus 2 kilos, let's say. So the improvement was 10 plus or minus 2 then what some people will do is they'll calculate that effect size as the 10 kilo change divided by the standard deviation of the change, which is two kilos, and then say, oh, now that's an effect size of five. And so just to put this in context, the traditional way of interpreting effect sizes is is if it's less than 0.2, it's considered trivial. If it's between two and 0.5, it's considered medium or moderate. 
If it's between 0.5 and 0.8, it's considered, or no, if it's between 0.2 and 0.5, it's considered small. Between 0.5 and 0.8 is medium or moderate, and above 0.8 is considered large. Um, you're not necessarily slave to those interpretations because, you know, for some applications, like, you know, let's say you're talking about elite level athletes, if they improve by 0.3 standard deviations in that context, that may be a really, really big improvement um, versus, you know, if you get a effect size of 0.8 in untrained lifters in terms of like strength gains over 16 weeks, really, that's a pretty small effect in that population. So there is some subjectivity and in interpretation, but those are the figures generally used. And certainly you'll you'll virtually never see an effect size above like two or three. So by, but what can happen is if you calculate it by the change divided by the standard deviation of the change, unless the change was just unbelievably variable, unless this the standard deviation of the change was larger than the standard deviation of the characteristic within the population pre-training, it's just going to massively inflate your effect sizes. Right. So you effectively wind up with, you know, group increases their bench press by 10 kilos. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's a medium effect. Um, but if you calculate that effect size as five, now you're saying like, wow, this is the most unbelievably huge effect on bench press performance we have ever seen. And it's just dumb. Like, Right. And, and there, there are times where you could calculate that metric which is you know using the change standard deviation as the denominator and you could make useful inferences based on it but um you, in the exercise science literature you just don't see it clearly labeled and interpreted as right. such what what you see almost all the time is conflating those two very different numbers as the same thing and taking this wildly inflated uh estimate of what you could call an effect size but acting like it's that original scaled value correct and saying wow um we saw a huge effect yeah and so and it and it turns out that the actual change was like two kilos plus or minus half a kilo but it's an effect size of four right yeah so <laughs> it, it, it's inflated numbers and again that even if it was just that in the literature i could get over it but a lot of times you're just you're looking at the table with the values that were used to to calculate the effect size and you're like there's no way this com combination of numbers would give you that effect size right and use whatever standard deviation you want and the re the reason it's so frustrating to me at least is that like stats can get really hairy and even some of the things that are used frequently in statistics can be a little bit confusing or take you a little a little while to figure out exactly how to interpret them, how they would be calculated. A lot of calculations you probably wouldn't want to do by hand. Like a p-value, for instance, like the the basic understanding of it isn't that hard, but people who are really into stats, like we've both seen people say like, oh, I, I'd probably need a good solid thousand words to explain to you exactly what a p-value is. Or, <laughs> or or they'll say like, no one should ever try. Yeah, <laughs> like or, or like uh, an f-ratio, like... You know, it's going to be very difficult to calculate by hand. It's kind of a theoretical construct what that actually represents. But an effect size is incredibly straightforward, and a fucking second grader could calculate it. It's 
by how many standard deviations did something change or by how many standard deviations are these two things different? Like that's a pretty simple understanding and that's not a simplified understanding. That is what it actually is. And it's one number divided by another number. Like that's, that's how the fuck you calculate it. It, it is the most basic concept that is frequently used in in our statistical methods in exercise science. And probably a good solid 20 to 30% of the studies that use it fuck it up. I know. And it's it's outrageous. I know. It's not okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. All right. Now, um, you came across a study this month about sleep. And, and you were uh, going to... Uh, inform us all about uh recovery from sleep I, I guess basically the study was looking at like trying to overcome a sleep debt essentially is that a fair characterization yeah so this study was titled two nights of recovery sleep restores dynamic lipemic response or lipemic response but not the reduction in insulin sensitivity induced by five nights of sleep restriction and so this is a really cool title in that it basically tells you how the study was conducted and what the findings were. Um, they took people who habitually slept pretty well, slept about eight hours a night. They had a lead-in phase of a couple days, had them in the lab in bed for 10 hours a night, not necessarily sleeping 10 hours a night, but they got eight and a half, nine hours for a couple nights just to make sure everyone was at a good baseline. And then they tested um, they tested insulin sensitivity and some metrics associated with free fatty acids in the blood. Um, and then they had them sleep for five hours a night for five nights. And then they had them in bed for 10 hours a night for another two nights. So they were basically trying to mimic a work week during which you sleep five hours a night on work nights and you sleep in two days on the weekends and basically are able to sleep as much as you want. And so what they found is that uh, insulin sensitivity and the blood lipid response got um, pretty substantially worse after five nights of poor sleep. And then after two nights of recovery sleep to try to make up that sleep debt, um, the, the free fatty acid kinetics, those were back to baseline. Those looked pretty good again. But insulin sensitivity... Not only was it not back to baseline, it basically didn't improve at all. Uh, <laughs> insulin sensitivity decreased by roughly a third um, during the five nights of sleep restriction. After the two days of sleep recovery, it was basically where it had been prior, um, or it was basically where it had been at the end of sleep of the sleep restriction. So, just two nights of recovery sleep didn't really seem to do much. To bring that back. So theoretically, if you have insulin insensitivity induced by poor sleep, you're probably going to need, well, you certainly need longer than two days to bring that back, but probably even longer than that. That's really discouraging. Yeah. It'd be really nice to live in a world where you could just totally mess something up for five days and then fix it in two. I would like that. Yeah. And I think that's something that people are becoming more savvy to now that, um, like Matthew Walker's profile worldwide has increased a lot. He's he's a, a hotshot sleep researcher, probably probably one of the best known sleep researchers, and and certainly the best known um, popularizer of sleep research. He's gotten 
a lot more press over the years, put out a book called Why We Sleep, I believe is the title of it. So now people are getting savvy to this, but um, this used to be less well-known by folks that essentially um, you can't fully make up for a sleep debt. Um, to fully get the benefits of good sleep, you need to sleep well night in and night out. And, you know, one or two bad nights isn't going to kill you, but if you sleep bad every weeknight and then just try to make up for it on the weekends, you can't do it. It's certainly better to make up, to attempt to make up for it on the weekends than also to sleep like shit on the weekends, but it's not... It's not just not as good as sleeping well every night. It's not even close to as good. All right. To play us out today, um, a new paper that came out this month called Putting Out the Fire, Efficacy of Common Beverages in Reducing Oral Burn from Capsaicin. So um, this was a nice, lighthearted study. If you've ever eaten spicy things and wondered what kind of beverage can get me out of this jam, there is brand new hot off the press of science to help you with your problem. So um, the, the reason I brought the study up was, uh, was twofold. First of all, I wanted to highlight their very, very controversial decision to categorize. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even say it. Uh, they, they said it at one point in the paper that they used the term fruit punch. And I was like, they didn't use fruit punch. And they categorized Kool-Aid as fruit punch, which seems to be a very generous interpretation of what kool-aid is that's literally right out of a Chappelle show sketch <laughs> i know <laughs> so so yeah i saw that and i was like okay i need to i need to bring this to the attention of the world um now if you are interested in the outcome of the study uh eating spicy things makes your mouth uncomfortably hot but uh, a few of the beverages that did uh, quite well were whole milk kool-aid and skim milk Beer and cola did fine, a little bit better than water, but not by much. Um, all the beverages helped to some extent. So they, the ones that didn't do a ton included seltzer and just regular water. But yeah, I mean, I, I drank a lot of Kool-Aid growing up. Believe me, it was like the only thing I drank. So Kool-Aid always had a special place in my heart. So it's nice to see that it's making its way into the peer-reviewed literature and succeeding in the process. Which was your favorite Kool-Aid? Oh, um... I really like the grape. Okay. I thought the grape was really good. What about you? Probably the grape as well. Yeah. The grape was very good. They knew what they were doing. All right. So now that we've covered um, literally all of this month's scientific research on Kool-Aid, it is time for the interview portion of the show. We've got a great interview with Dr. Brad Dieter. Uh, you might know Brad from Eat to Perform, Macros Inc. He's involved with a bunch of other companies and projects. And I sat down with Brad and we talked a little bit about artificial sweeteners, processed foods, body fat set points, and much, much more. So it's a really great interview. Uh, stay tuned and I hope you enjoy. So we got Brad here. Um, first of all, Brad, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, of course, man. This is awesome. I'm uh, excited to talk to you. I think the last time you and I chatted, we were both in the Midwest, and uh, it'll be nice to just reconnect and get caught up. Yeah, we were both talking at the uh, that Macros Inc. conference in uh, in Chicago, and uh, yeah, it's it's good to talk to you again. This one's going to be different, okay? So on this show, it's going to be very um, combative, 
very adversarial. Um, and we purposely don't do video because I don't, you know, I feel like we'll both agree that you've skated along your whole career with your good looks. Uh, <laughs> but this is audio only. Okay. So it's going, we're going toe to toe and it's just ideas. Okay. So you got to hold your own today. All right, I'll, uh, um, I'll get out the intellectual boxing gloves and see what we can come up with. Beautiful. The more combative, the better. I mean, you, you people listening don't know. You were on like a billboard, right? <laughs> I've been on a few, yeah. A few? Oh, my God. We, uh, <laughs> we actually so have uh, the people who did them just called me like two weeks ago. and was like, we have all your billboards. So now I have four, uh, I think they're like 18 by 40 foot billboards just folded up in my garage. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. Well, you have the actual billboards? Oh, yeah. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So if you're listening to this, um, you may have heard that uh, Brad is charming and handsome. That's that's fake news. Um, It's a a nasty rumor that's gone around. Trust me, he's not that good looking. I don't know how he swindled these people into putting him on a billboard. It's definitely not because him and his wife are a beautiful couple. it was like a marriage thing, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's all my wife. I, I give her all the credit for that. <laughs> all right. So, you know, we, we met in Chicago and we're hanging out. And um, normally this is a bad thing, but I mean this in the most, uh, I mean this as a compliment. But if you've ever seen the uh, the movie Office Space, they're, they're interviewing a guy and they say, what exactly is it that you do around here? so normally it means like do you do anything but when we were hanging out in chicago i couldn't really wrap my head around all the stuff you have going on you're kind it seems like you've got uh, a lot of irons in the fire so do you mind giving us a little uh, introduction about basically your background and what it is that you currently do yeah so i'll i'll try to summarize my background as quick as possible not to eat up too much people's time so i did my undergrad um Thought about going to med school, decided not to do that. I went back and got my master's. Uh, we f- I focused on biomechanics, doing electrophysiology work, and then got more interested in kind of the physiology piece. Um, so I did a PhD in exercise physiology and looked, I primarily did molecular biology work um, and used exercise as kind of a therapeutic modality and looked at uh, you know genetic regulation in the heart. Um, and then I did a fellowship in... Uh, nephrology, where I did a lot more molecular work, and I also kind of, during my PhD, my fellowship, and my uh, staff scientist career, faculty scientist career, I did a lot of data analytic work, um, kind of just built up a data science background too, and kind of, when I was, right when I started my fellowship, I kind of started doing a lot more industry work, um, and started kind of the entrepreneur route, um, and joined a company um, called Eat to Perform and kind of built that up and turned that from more of a like information product business into a, a coaching business and then into a software technology business. Um, so that's been a big project of mine over the last few years. I just left kind of formal academia um, in about September, although a lot of the work that I was working on um, is just finally being published. So, Welcome to the dark side. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the dark side of the... You used but to be a real scientist. I used to be a real scientist, and now I just kind of tell people how to do science. That's kind of mostly what I do. So uh, I'm no longer in academia, but I'm kind of fully in um, industry entrepreneurship mode. Uh, I run, so I co-run Eat to Perform. Um, I also 
am on the scientific advisory board for several companies and kind of lead their um, their R and D uh, and kind of help them with all their all their biotech stuff. Um, and then just all the other little projects that I'm involved in here and there. So basically, you were a scientist, then you started getting into uh, Gary Vaynerchuk videos, and you realized, <laughs> oh my god, I need to be an entrepreneur. You know what's so funny is my approach to almost everything is the opposite of his. Um, maybe <laughs> maybe that's why he's almost a billionaire, and I'm like, I, I made a joke to my wife the other day when we went to Vegas for a weekend, I was like, maybe we'll leave thousand heirs and come home 10,000 heirs. Um, so maybe that's, that's maybe that's where I went wrong. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. So you've got a very diverse background and I, I bet your, um, your data science background is probably very strong because that's a lot of different types of data that you've dealt with, with, with all those different focuses, I would imagine. Yeah. You know, that's been one of the the most interesting things is, you know, kind of having this data science as a skill and then looking at it from, you know, all the different types of data input. It really, it's been really eye-opening because you start to realize when people are kind of looking at data, they're analyzing data, um, they're publishing it, whether it's in the economic space, the health space, the, you know, financial space, is the output of what you see is based on a lot of assumptions. Um, and I think a lot of times there's not a lot of thought given to the assumptions of what goes into it. And so that's been probably the most helpful thing is, you know, having the, the fairly rigorous, you know, medical background training, um, as brutal as it can be, really kind of makes you be very thoughtful in how you think about, you know, the inputs of what you're analyzing. Um, so that's been really, really interesting. Yeah. So now you find yourself in a position, you've got this diverse background, you're more into the, the private sector. And, you know, one of the reasons I said, like, what do you do around here is because you're, the stuff you put out is so relevant and it's so comprehensive. I feel like you've, you've got a little footing in several different areas, but the, the kind of general nutrition stuff that you put out on social media and different articles um, is really, really good stuff. Very helpful. And it's important that we have people like you who have this strong science background and strong statistics background that are still, you know, contributing this stuff straight to the people using the information. So I want to ask you about a couple things you've put out lately just on social media. You know, there was a recent paper about artificially sweetened beverages. Do you mind giving a little background about exactly what the paper looked like? Yeah. So this was, I'm trying to think. This was probably in February, so it was about two a um, month and a half ago, uh, and uh, a paper came out basically showing that you know people who drink more basically diet sodas um, are more likely to have negative health outcomes, right? So I always try to bin these into really broad ideas and then get into specifics. And what it really showed, or what they tried to say that it showed is that, you know, people who drink more Diet Coke are more likely to have an increased risk of stroke specifically. Uh, and it kind of made the media circles, you know, that people shouldn't drink diet soda because it has this increased risk of, you know, some bad outcome that's related to cardiovascular, right? So whenever you see a headline of like a big health outcome, you know, that's typically what gets people interested and intrigued is if I can find one thing that shows you something bad could happen to you, you know, then it's worth reading. Um, so that was yeah. kind of the, and it's the also overview. got that thing, that thing going for it where it's like, uh, I mean, it's, it's a story as old as time, right? Like 
is that household item actually killing you? You know, like, I mean, artificial sweeteners these days are everywhere. So it, it was kind of like a perfect storm to get the media, you know, a little bit riled up. Yeah, it's like, I'm sure whenever you've read any article on CNN or Science Alert or ESPN, there's always like the paid content at the bottom. Um, and it's always this one food, you know, that cardiologists tell you to never eat again. It's very much right. one of those kind of clickbaity titles. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the, the interesting thing is those are always going to come up. Um, and so you always have to find a way to dig through that and then kind of come up with what is actually being said from that data. Yeah. So, so after you kind of took a look at it without getting, you know, you don't have to get into super granular details, but was there any meat behind that? Was there justification to those uh, kind of scary headlines that came out with it? Yeah. Well, the, the really interesting thing that I liked about this article was that it highlights one of the, what I call bigger issues of what we kind of see in nutritional epidemiology studies is and I'll, I'll talk about this first, is this idea that risk factors, you know, cluster. Um, and the fact that it's really hard statistically to tease out one thing from all these other things. So for example, you know, in this study, basically what they showed was that if they took people who had the highest amount of, you know, diet soda intake per day, which is basically... Um, you know, more than two artificially sweetened beverages or like diet sodas per week compared to, you know, people who had less than one or never is those people were almost twice as likely to be smokers. They, you know, had, were much more likely to be obese. So a BMI of over 30, they were more likely to be hypertensive. Um, they were more than four times, uh, more likely to have diabetes they had a 30% higher rate of, you know, previous cardiovascular issues. Uh, they were more likely to consume sugar-sweetened beverages on top of diet soda. Um, mm -hmm. They were a lot less active. They had a lower healthy eating index, and they consumed about 160 more calories a day. So what it's really telling you is that, you know, all of these other factors are also associated with risk of stroke, right? So we do know those from other independent studies. So it's First of all, it's pr pretty likely that they, you know, don't just have the just the diet soda. They have all these other things, you know, that are going on. Right. So, did the authors of the study say, like, you know, we saw that they also had all these other risk factors? Did they try to account for them statistically, or did they just say, uh, just so you know, these are other things about diet soda drinkers? Yeah, so typically what they do is they try to account for those statistically, right? So they'll do kind of these multi-step models and see which ones are there. Um, but the problem is, is even when you statistically control for all those things, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really account for all of the biology, right? And it doesn't account right. for all the synergistic effects. Um, so you kind of run into this thing of you can, you can adjust for all these, you know, covariates, so to speak, and still have an independent risk that pops out, but that doesn't negate, you know, all the other pieces that go into it. Um, so there's kind of this statistical piece versus this, you know, what actually is meaningful. Right. Uh, so, yeah. so that's the big thing to really understand there. Yeah. I think a lot of times we see this idea of using these covariates and models and saying, oh, well, we accounted for that. And it's like, well, no, you, you, you tried to kind of massage out that variability, but, but I think a lot of times we, 
kind of overstate our confidence in how well that statistical control is truly getting to the root of that. Yeah. And what I would say is, you know, for people who've ever done analyses like that is, you know, you can really see how much things change when you add, subtract different variables, you, you know, kind of transform data, all that kind of stuff really does matter in terms of, you know, what your outcome is, right? So if you had redone that model and included one different variable, depending on how sensitive it was, you know, that finding could have just washed away. So, so after kind of reviewing the, the paper as a whole, was your main takeaway that um, essentially you had uh, maybe not a lot of confidence in the, in the idea that the diet soda was really dictating that stroke risk? Yeah, absolutely. And then when you kind of, even when you, you know, accounted for this whole, you know, health factors clustering thing is when you dive into the, you know, the, the actual like rates of events um, and not just uh, basically a survival analysis and you look at actual rates of events is there was no difference. Um, so it didn't really pan out all the way through. What it really looked like is they took a bunch of data, one of these large data sets, um, and they found something that popped out of the data set, which whenever you have really large uh, you know, sample sizes, you're going to find statistically significant things. Um, just that's yeah. the nature of, of how the math works. Um, you'll find something, and then you can publish it. But when you looked at the, the actual you know, incidence rates, is there was no difference between people who had a lot and people who had a little. Like, for example, I just pulled it up real quick, is... Um, you know, for stroke, let's say all stroke, which was kind of their primary outcome, is those who had, you know, more than two a day was about 2.5 um, incidents per thousand person years. And then people who had less than one or never were 2.45. So it was basically no difference um, in yeah. terms of what that looks like. W was that particular comparison, was that statistically significant? No, so they were all overlapping. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Was, I was yeah. going to say that must have been a <laughs> seventy million person <laughs> trial. Yeah. Must have been in that trial. Didn't even know it. Um, okay. So you bring up some good points. You know, with first of all with the covariates, but also sometimes you know even when we do look at epi papers like that, and I think this happens a lot in nutrition epi. Sometimes you even will find a statistically significant finding, but when you actually boil it down into the things that that matter, kind of the tangible outcomes, you'll say like, oh, so instead of having a 2% risk of getting that, I'll have a 2.5% risk of getting that. And in, in some designs, that will be, you know, a statistically significant difference. But the take home point is you're probably not going to have that issue. Yeah, exactly. Right. So then, I mean, that's the argument of absolute versus relative risk. And, yeah. you know, whenever you read a lot of these papers that have things like survival analyses, those are typically all relative risks, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's an odds or a change based on a reference point, but it doesn't tell you about the absolute incidence. And that's why you kind of have to look at those and see, is this something that I want to concern myself with? It's kind of like with a weight loss trial, right? You'll say like, oh, these two, you know, we had a control group and then this huge pain in the ass intervention. And after a year, the pain in the ass intervention, you know, you lost an, an extra kilogram and you're like, yeah. yeah, but it was a huge pain in the ass. <laughs> like for a kilogram over a year, I just don't think I care. And there's no stats that can make me care. Yeah. And you know, that's, um, that's kind of one of the more interesting pieces that this might, this may go on a tangent. Um, but I was talking about this in a lecture I was recording this morning is, 
one of the problems I think a lot of people are running into a lot, you know, with especially these like diet intervention studies, and we talk specifically about like health outcomes, whether it's cancer risk, cardiovascular risk, um, all those things is at this point, a lot of the interventions we have are on top of what's current standard of care. And I think that's an important thing for people to note, especially when they're looking at studies now versus like the 1980s or 90s. So if we look at like, let's say uh, like a diet study, right? They want to look at food quality or whatever for cardiovascular disease outcomes. If you were to do that study in the 1980s, right, when standard of care for cardiovascular disease was not really well founded, right? There was not like a, you know, if you had blood sugar issues, you were immediately on metformin. If you had, you know, elevated cholesterol, you're immediately on a statin. If you have elevated triglycerides, you're on, you know, a phenylfibrate, et cetera, which all, you know, lower cardiovascular risk. You know, if you put a dietary therapy on top of that, you're probably going to see a pretty big reduction in risk, right? Because there's no risk reduction occurring at all. But yeah. now that people are on all these medications, if you add, you know, a dietary intervention that doesn't lead to super substantial weight loss, you know, you're not going to see a whole lot of reduction in terms of risk for cardiovascular outcomes. Um, yeah. And I don't think a lot of people, you know, really think about that in terms of, okay, what is the context in which we're actually looking for an effect? All these statistical tests are, in most cases, against a comparator, but what are you comparing to, basically? Like, like what is the context in which that intervention's introduced, and what is it compared to? Exactly, right? So if we think about, um, you know, just a really rel relevant example, like um, new drug trials for looking at glycemic control, right? Because I spent most of my PhD and postdoc fellowship doing diabetes work is... Like if you were to look at almost any drug in the 19, late 1990s for improving glycemic control, like almost all of them would have worked and shown you a benefit, right? And been like above, you know, what's current standard of care. Yeah. Well, now we have, you know, we have kind of polypharmacy that's all controlling this stuff. So any new drug you're going to use has to be better then, you know, what's already pretty good and it has to be, you know, measurably better. Um, so it's, it's just such a different landscape when we look at interventions. And this is why I stay the hell away from Epi. I did one <laughs> Epi paper and I was like, man, this stuff's complicated. I mean, <laughs> I, I want to be a control freak so I don't have to deal with all this crap. I control everything. Yeah. So uh, one final thing to bring up, did they put forth any kind of viable, in your opinion, like a viable, justifiable mechanism by which you would link the, you know, the sweeteners to stroke risk? No, I mean, I can't even remember from the discussion section if there was anything that was even remotely close um, to being, you know, a probable mechanism. I think that's one of the hard parts with these large epi studies and things like artificial sweeteners is when you don't have a super clear mechanism, you know, anything you can offer in a discussion section has to be, you know, really well validated. I mean, I think, you know, a good example of that would be, you know, how did we go from smoking epidemiology to, you know, cessation of smoking, reducing lung cancer risk? Well, we had big epi data, but then we had a boatload of, you know, very well controlled mechanistic studies um, that supported that epi finding. And with the kind of artificial sweetener, and stroke risk, we have almost nothing. Um, so, 
you're, you're kind of, you only have one side of the coin. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I mean, I think you and I are similar in the sense that we like the science, but the science is a tool to actually move toward informing behavior. So at the end of the day, do you see any reason why, um, why someone would want to either avoid or restrict their artificial sweetener use? You know, I think there's, that's where it comes down to like individual, you know, responses, individual preferences, etc. You know, things like some people just report they have headaches consuming diet soda, right? Whether the science bears that out, I think is still relatively unknown. But like, if you don't feel good when you drink diet soda, don't drink diet soda, right? Um, you don't, you're not forced to drink it for any health purposes. That's a bold think, take. Don't do things that... <laughs> Give, give <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's a lot of it's, you know, things like that. Or if, you know, you find, you know, diet soda is a trigger for consuming a bunch of other food, you know, think about that in the context of those things. So it's always, I kind of view science as how can I use this to empower my decision making? Um, right. And, you know, if I can look at, if I can look at all the evidence and say, okay, diet soda doesn't really have any large negative health consequences. That gives me this one thing I can use in my, in my toolkit, right? If mm -hmm. I have somebody who's drinking a boatload of, you know, real soda and they're getting a thousand calories a day from Coca-Cola, if I can switch them to diet Coke, that's probably a net benefit. Um, yeah. But then if I have and somebody... And that's not even, I mean, that thousand calorie number is not a particularly unrealistic number. Um, you know, certain demographics, um, I have a buddy who's a, a dietitian, and, you know, and, and he'll have clients that honest to God, a thousand calories of, of soda. And so like, you know, whenever these bad papers come out with, with, uh, artificial sweeteners, he's like, okay. But like when you've got somebody who's like close to losing a limb to diabetes and you can knock a thousand calories worth of sugar out of their diet, you do it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's, I always view these kind of things as like, what can I learn that adds a tool to my toolbox? Yeah. Or if you have a bodybuilder who, uh, it's the only thing that makes them kind of happy. Is there one diet soda for the day? What kind of a monster would take that from them? But I mean, you know, I, I've looked at the, the artificial sweetener stuff and correct me if I'm wrong, but when, when it comes to weight management, it seems to be pretty neutral. You know, the, the, the biggest thing I've seen lately with them is people talking about how they affect the, the gut microbiome. And that seems to me not, not fully conclusive at this time. Is that how you perceive it? Yeah, I would say, I would say one, that data is pretty inconclusive at this point from, from my read of the literature. Um, two, the, the microbiome stuff? Yeah, okay. yep. Um, and then two, I would say, I just think our understanding of the microbiome in general is not well understood. Um, I think we're far from understanding, you know, how certain things perturb the microbiome and then how that affects, you know, obesity, cardiovascular risk, stroke, cancer, all that stuff. I think it's, I just think we have no real comprehensive understanding of, of that at this point. Yeah, I used to get a kick out of it because uh, especially some of the early papers in that area, and these, these are very good scientists doing it. I'm not being, you know, hypercritical, but in many cases they, they would report, you know, some kind of thing and say, well, the microbiome changed. 
It's, yeah, oh, maybe it, it should change. <laughs> and it's like, in a good way or a bad way, they're like, well, in a different way. <laughs> it's like, and the, you know, you would have to kind of run with it and make some kind of working conclusion of what you found. But we really, we really are just at the beginning of, of figuring out not just what induced changes, but what are the ramifications of those changes. And a change is not always bad, you know? Yeah. And I almost like, I start to liken microbiome research to, you know, neurobiology and the fact that you have a very complicated system that's highly networked, that has a lot of downstream effects. Um, you need really powerful computation to start to even tease those relationships out and then understanding the causal nature of those. I mean, it's going to take a long time to unravel that. Um, you know, if you think about it, the whole, you know, bacterial interaction with other organisms is billions of years old. Um, so the fact that we have not unlocked all the keys in, I think it's been maybe 12, 15 years of research does not surprise me whatsoever. So you're saying five more years? <laughs> I'm saying five more years, we might have a start of a picture. That's Brad with his classic, uh, his classic optimism. <laughs> now, there's another paper that, that made a, a lot of headlines recently. So Kevin Hall is, uh, he's a beast. Kevin Hall is like the lead researcher at the NIH, basically all their dietary interventions, their nutrition interventions. And he finally did a study looking at processed food intake in, in a mm -hmm. highly controlled environment. Do you mind giving just like a brief overview of what, what he was comparing there? Yeah, so... What he was really starting to look at was, you know, if you take people and you give them ultra processed foods versus unprocessed foods, what happens to their calorie intake over that period of time, right? And you don't really restrict them on what they could eat. He wanted to see basically how does, you know, the palatability or the processed nature of your food affect your food intake. Um, and he wanted to do that with as much control as possible. So he, you know, he did things where he, you know, controlled protein intake as much as he could across the groups. Like he made the protein density of the food as close as possible. Um, obviously energy density was a little bit different, but he tried to make it as well controlled as possible and wanted to see, you know, if I give people a diet of unprocessed food versus processed food, does it change how much food they consume? Um, and it was kind of a, a an experiment that wanted to look at how has the modern food environment changed our, you know, our food consumption behavior and could part of it be, you know, just due to the processed nature of the food, right? We've had a lot of like, oh, this must be it. But this was one of the first really good experiments that actually tested that and quantified that effect. What did they find? So basically what he found, you know, with all the details spared is that people who are given a processed diet consumed about 500 calories a day more, which is, you know, about 3,500 calories a week. Yeah. And that was the major that's finding. A, that's a significant amount of calories. That is, that is a significant amount of calories. And I think one of the most interesting pieces to this was that we kind of have, you know, human biology kind of has this thing built in where we can kind of regulate our food intake, um, you know, in a normal-ish food environment. Um, but what he found was that you know, something about the processed foods versus the unprocessed foods, they have the same effect on kind of pleasantness, fullness, satisfaction. So even though these people were consuming, you know, 500 calories a day more or 3,500 calories a week more, which is a, a large surplus, 
um, there's no difference in kind of perception of fullness, enjoyment of food, etc. Which is, you know, something that's very interesting because it starts to kind of tip our hat towards something about these this combination of really ultra processed food kind of overrides some of our biological mechanisms to control you know food intake at least over this short term period. Do you think palatability is is kind of one of the main driving factors, or do you think it's more than that? You know, I think there's, I think palatability is part of it. Um, I think that has to deal with part of the, you know, satisfaction of eating food, right? I think when you eat bland food versus hyperpalatable food, um, you know, supposedly you you enjoy the hyperpalatable food more. Um, I think there's some data from that paper to suggest there's some hormonal piece to it too. So it may go beyond, you know, just the processed, tasteful nature of the food. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, that's probably multifactorial of what's going on. Um, so there's, there's probably this, you know, brain reward piece. There's probably a hormonal piece. There's probably just a behavioral piece. Um, yeah. But it's, it's starting to show that there's something about this food that's kind of driving overconsumption. Yeah. I mean, I, I know the idea that, you know, especially in like the bodybuilding world, the fitness world, there's the whole, you know, if it fits your macros, nothing else matters. And I think it's very safe to say that that is a gross oversimplification. We know that that food affects more than that. I know the, the Kevin Hall study was to look at how eating behavior would be affected. So they were not calorie controlled. But even, you know, when, when people are on a really, really low calorie diet, some people go the direction where they try to make their, their foods, they go with very processed, hyper palatable food combinations, and they spend a lot of effort and time making those on low macros. And sometimes I advise against that. You know, it depends on the person. But like, for me, that just makes the process worse. Have, have you ever like messed around with that when you're dieting or with, with clients? Yeah, you know, I would say, you know, first, I totally agree with you that, you know, Calorie balance is one idea, but to suggest that the types of food you consume doesn't matter is, is a really gross representation of this idea of calorie balance. Um, and it's, it's absolutely true that we know that, you know, as caloric intake goes down, the types of food you eat to kind of manage hunger um, does start to matter a lot more. I think there's some good data from the literature to suggest that's true. Um, I think we know, you know, what types of foods on average are more satiating than others. Typically kind of more unprocessed foods tend to be more satiating than others. Obviously there's exceptions, you know, things like, uh, you know, like olive oil or butter, which are minimally processed, you know, are pretty energy dense compared to other things. But I think in general, you know, managing hunger and very low levels of calorie intake does start to become this, like, what is it about your food outside the calories that we can play with? Um, yeah. And there's a lot of different things that affect that. Yeah. And by the way, rethinking my statement, certainly the, the macros are what make the, the big time changes. So I'm certainly not disputing that. But there are aspects of food that be, go beyond the macros that offer us tools to affect the diet and how we respond to it. But um I think one one of the cool things about Kevin Hall's paper is that it kind of, there's been this question for several years now, why in the past few decades have we been getting fatter? You know, when, when you look at the, just the prevalence of overweight and obesity, all the maps that used to be that, you know, 
those pretty light yellow colors are now dark red. We, we see these rates going up across the board in the United States. Do you think processed foods play a big role in that? Yeah, I think they... I think it would be hard to argue that they do not. Um, I think most of the evidence suggests that it plays one role or it plays a role amongst the many factors that have, have driven this issue. Um, so I think processed foods are one of them. I think in certain cultures, it's a bigger factor than others. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we've, most people have kind of missed the boat on is, the fact that there's kind of regional hotspots of obesity um, kind of tells you that we know that kind of obesity in general is a multifactorial issue, right? And that we have, well, I don't know, 20 inputs that cause that. And each kind of hotspot or area likely has, you know, different knobs that really turn that, you know, increase in obesity up, right? So we, some areas, it's just lack of physical activity. It, that's more prevalent than others. Some it may be um, food access that's different. You know, others it may just be cultural. Some it may be a tiny bit more genetic. You know, some it may be etc. So I think part of the problem we've had is we don't recognize that while obesity has very common root causes, the amount to which each root cause contributes can vary based on the situation. Yeah. And so recently on the uh, on the Joe Rogan podcast, which I consider to be a peer podcast, you know, when you think popular podcast, you think Stronger mm -hmm. by Science or Joe Rogan. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. There, right. There was a debate between Gary Taubes and Stefan uh, Guillenet. Is that how he says yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, um, whew, okay. <laughs> well, you didn't call him Steve, so you're already one up on, on Gary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you saw the debate, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was your main takeaway? How do you think it went? Yeah, it was, man, it was so interesting. Um, I did a little bit of a write-up on this, but it was almost... Oh, before I forget, um, the reason I'm linking the two together, basically the premise of the debate was, why did we get obese and how much of a role does carbohydrate or insulin play in that yeah so that was that was yeah so the debate was the way i viewed it was you kind of had two people um who speak very different languages and have very different views of the world trying to come to a common answer um you know i think i think stefan is probably one of the smartest people in terms of anybody in the world who understands causes of obesity um, yeah. you know, I think Gary is a very good journalist and storyteller, um, who has, he's kind of a, what I would call a science, a scientism perspective, um, not a scientific perspective. And the fact that he kind of uses it as a buzzword, um, but doesn't really fully understand all of its pieces and mechanisms. And so Stefan very much came from a, here's the data, um, here is the best, interpretation we have based on that data um, and Gary's approach is very much here's some stories that really kind of resonate with people um, and here's the story I think to be true and here's a few pieces of data that might support it um, and that was really kind of two very different approaches to the problem and so I think that was that was really interesting just to kind of watch that happen um, just kind of in real life play out so as Rush Limbaugh would say 
Gary Taubes is part of the drive-by media that is uh, using his journalistic wisdom to kind of take bits and pieces to put a story together. Yeah, I would say that's that's pretty accurate. Um, it was also very clear that he he had this view of almost a contempt for science um, and how it's done. I think there was there was a comment. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he said something about how meta analyses take all these garbage studies and put them together and then publish the results yeah. without looking at the quality of the studies. And I was like, that's literally not how it's done at all, right? If you've ever yeah. read a Cochrane review, if you've ever read, you know, one of the big meta-analyses, they publish with the meta-analyses, their, ex- their inclusion criteria, their exclusion criteria, biases. They do, stud- they do statistical tests for looking at, um, you know, publication bias. They will rate studies in their quality, They'll let you know if any were excluded due to quality issues. Um, so it's like there was a lot of that stuff that was said that's just very not true of how it, the process of science is actually conducted. Watching the, the podcast was fascinating because you can tell that, that Gary is a damn good journalist because for every, even for some studies, he would say, no, but what's the real story behind the story? So it was not what did the data say, but how were the data how did this study come to be? So not methodology, but what was the funding relationship and what was maybe the intrinsic bias of the researcher going into it? And, and what were the educational backgrounds that might pers- um, influence the way they interpreted their own data? You, you could see these two different worlds, like you mentioned. Yeah. And I'm, and re- that was- I'm really upset that, by the way, that you didn't laugh at my Rush Limbaugh thing. Um, <laughs> Greg challenged me this morning to see if I could work in a Rush Limbaugh reference at some point in the podcast. There so you go. Today it worked. And I thought that was, I thought it was actually relevant. I think my problem is whenever I hear like a, a like a Fox News or CNN, like person's <laughs> name mentioned, I just like, I get this black hole in my brain and I just can't process <laughs> anything that happens. Uh, yeah, but was, you know, what's interesting that you bring up is, you know, Gary made a, a, a very interesting comment several times throughout the the part or the the debate of you know scientists bring this very siloed perspective you know he he mentioned that stefan you know only thought about the neurobiology piece because that's what he did his his research in and that right there kind of showed me a big uh, a big hole in his understanding of exactly like as a scientist what you do um and how your career unfolds and the fact that just because you have one specific focus doesn't mean you don't think about all the other pieces that are related to it, right? I mean, yeah. Stefan did a, he did his PhD in neurobiology. He did a fellowship. Um, I know he did at least one fellowship. He might have done two, looking at the neurobiology of obesity. And in his lab, and right down the hall, because I know where his lab used to be, because I used to go over there all the time, you know, where people who are doing, you know, overall metabolism research, other diabetes research that are not in the brain. Um, you know, they're working on peripheral mechanisms. They're working on all this other stuff. But just because you only have the capacity to do so much work in a career, you focus on one piece. It's very similar to how, you know, Gary is a, you know, quote unquote, science journalist, right? He doesn't cover like women's fashion, right? I mean, should we say that he is not a good journalist and that journalism has a big flaw because, you know, a journalist only focuses on one area? It's like, well, you you have to carve out your area of expertise. And you know, just because of that, that doesn't mean Gary doesn't understand how journalism works. It's just that's your content area of, of focus. 
Yeah, there was a couple times where he mentioned that people in the weight regulation space got got way away from anything happening in the periphery of the body. And that's just not been my experience working through the literature. You know what I mean? Like that that's not at all what I see. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. Aside from being a compelling narrative, I'm not really sure where that came from. I mean, is that has that been your experience? Um, I think that's it's a really good it's a really good trope to use to cast doubt on somebody. Um, and I think it's, it's very effective, right? If I say, well, all you do is think about the brain and I can say you did all of your research in the brain, you know, people are going to be like, Oh yeah, that he hasn't thought about anything else. Um, yeah. so it's, it's kind of an easy sticking point to just put a pin in, um, for somebody. But as a general rule, you know, just because you are primarily focused on one aspect of science doesn't mean you, don't understand the rest of it, right? Like I spent most of my career studying, you know, diabetes and end organ complications, but that doesn't mean I don't understand how, you know, insulin kinetics and fat tissue work, right? Like that's part of my fundamental understanding of human biology um, that you have to use on a day-to-day basis. Now, now one of the things that, and by the way, I thought the debate was really good. I thought it was, it was interesting to see very different approaches and to see how the general population responds to each one of the things that kind of came up, kind of an over, overarching theme of the debate is basically the regulation of body weight. And you wrote a really good article. I don't know when you wrote it, but I just saw it again today about uh, body fat set points or at least settling points. And I was reading it and I was like, wow, this is really good. I can't believe I've never seen this article. And then at the bottom of it, you you mentioned that you and I had talked while you were writing it and that I had sent you a reference. I was like, Holy. yeah, I, you I, don't remember the, the Gravitostat paper you sent me? Well, I remember it now. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, damn, this is a good paper. And then at the end, it's like, Hey, thanks to Eric for chatting with me. I was like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's been a long couple of years, man. But, um, do you mind, kind of explaining the premise of, you know, because it, it ties in with body weight re- regulation and obesity. What exactly is a body fat set point? Yeah, so there's kind of this idea of your body weight and your body fat, we can kind of view them for the moment as one thing and we'll kind of break them apart later, is that your body has mechanisms to kind of control both of those, right? C- try to keep them even, right? It's kind of like a, probably the, the best way I can think about it in at the moment off the top of my head is think about your your body height right like you grow to a certain height i and prefer not to growing. brad i'm uh, you know what i mean i'm vertically challenged <laughs> okay let's say uh yeah no, we, we'll, can, we'll, we can use it we'll, we'll use it anyway um right so like there's some biological mechanism that tells your body to grow and then there's a biological mechanism that says okay this is a good height for us let's just stop growing right right and if you kind of use that idea you have that in all sorts of other mechanisms, right? You have it with uh, blood pressure, right? There's mechanisms that regulate blood pressure up and down. Um, heart rate. Pretty much everything has this kind of homeostatic basis that you can shift up or you can shift down, but for the most part, you kind of have this stable level. Um, and so there's been this idea that your body weight is kind of the same thing. Now, if you kind of look through all of the literature, and I'll just summarize this as, as easily as I can, is our body very clearly has mechanisms that defend against changes in body fat, right? Up or down, right? Let's say your set body fat is 10%. 
you have mechanisms that will try to keep it at 10%, you know, whether it goes up to 12, there'll be things that are kind of push it back down to 10. If it goes down to eight, there'll be things that push it back up to 10. Um, and there's a lot of different things that are going on, right? There's things like leptin. Um, there's just a whole lot of different things that go on. And that's yeah. been tested very, very, very rigorously. Um, and we see this a lot in dieting trials. We see this a lot in medication trials. And we know that that's there. So that's one piece of evidence or one, you know, one aspect to this problem. Now, the other aspect to this is we know that this mechanism can't be incredibly powerful because otherwise we wouldn't have the obesity problem we have, right? Yeah. If, I mean, if, if it's tightly regulated, then you wouldn't be gaining a ton of weight, right? You, you would start gaining and then the body would correct it. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's happened is people have said, okay, well, if, you know, if all these people are gaining excess amounts of body fat, and they're not saying at their set point, we, we don't have a, you know, mechanisms that defend the set point. Well, I think that's, you know, probably not the right way to think about it. And really what it is, is we have these biological mechanisms that defend against changes in body weight and body fat. Um, but those can be overpowered. Right? And either it's the magnitude of the stimulus, or it's the length of the stimulus, or it's some combination of both. Right? Yeah. So for example, if you overeat by 50 calories a day, uh, you know, your body can probably handle that extra for a long time, and your body will stay the same. Um, on the other hand, if you, you know, consume 25,000 calories in a day, your body probably can't handle all that, and there's going to be some storage of body fat. Yeah. Um, and what we're really starting to see is the truth of why we can't defend against this kind of moderately lean set point is we have a relatively large stimulus, right? Where if we look at physical activity and food intake data, looks to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 to 400 calories, 500 calories a day, depending on where you look, over decades, right? So you kind of have this magnitude and this length problem that's kind of surpassing our adaptive mechanisms, and that's kind of really, you know, where we kind of leave it is it's clear we have these adaptive mechanisms. There's enough data to suggest that that's very true, um, but they're clearly not strong enough to kind of overcome all these environmental stimuli that are kind of overpowering our ability to maintain set point. Yeah. And I mean, that's pretty, pretty clear, especially looking at that side of the equation. You know, can you mm -hmm. override the mechanisms that keep your body weight low. Absolutely. And most people do, you know, mathematically. Now, the question that I've always been interested in, you know, I, I've done some work with, you know, metabolic adaptations to weight loss that are the other side. When we try mm -hmm. to lose weight, things that are there to slow us down. My question is, when we, when we talk about these mechanisms to defend body weight, what do we do for someone who has to lose a substantial amount of body fat? They're stable at a very high body weight and they want to lose the weight and keep it off. Do you think we have the capacity to essentially reset our new point that we're going to settle at in terms of body fat? Um, I would say I don't know the answer to that question. Um, and I think it's because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff um, in the literature that suggests that, you know, always lean versus, you know, once obese 
are very different. Um, And so I think there's, there is something that happens when somebody becomes, you know, substantially obese, you know, whether it's a BMI of 35, 40, 45, if there's a hard cutoff, we don't know, but there is something that occurs that makes it difficult to lose all that weight and keep it off. Um, exactly what that is. I don't have the exact answer to, um, I think there's some change in, you know, whether it's kind of the neurobiology of a set point, whether it's the hormonal piece of a set point, there's a lot of stuff out there that's kind of pointing to different things. Um, and it appears to be multifactorial. I think there's some neurobiology component. Um, I think there's some hormonal component. For example, we do know that um, people who gain a lot of weight and then lose it, their leptin signaling is different um, than people who are always lean, uh, right? So they, they show some sort of sustained leptin resistance, um, things like insulin resistance, which do impact overall metabolism you know, is different in people who were obese and then go back to being lean um, versus somebody who's always been lean. So I think there's, there are changes that occur um, that, that can affect this kind of long-term ability to sustain massive weight loss. Um, so I think that's, that's piece of it. And I think there's probably also, it's pretty clear that there's some behavioral component, right? Is people who have, you know, ended up at 350 or 400 pounds, there's some behavioral component that maybe it's fixed and then, you know, is not fixed long-term. Um, I think that's a component of it too. So I think it's multifactorial. Yeah. The only thing I took away from that is that you mentioned insulin. So it sounds mm-hmm. like you're a Tobbs guy. You're saying it <laughs> sounds like insulin uh, is basically all we have going on. Yeah. Interesting take. That's the Rush Limbaugh interpretation of what I just said. <laughs> Sometimes I kind of take what I what makes me feel good and I leave the rest. So I think you bring up a great point. So like you're going to talk about metabolic adaptation at um, uh, Inland Empire Fitness Conference. Um, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it because I've been talking about it for ages. And it's tricky because, you know, because I've been I've worked in that, I tend to focus on the adaptations that persist, you know, physiology, looking at hormones, looking at energy expenditure. And the two areas that I probably haven't looked, I haven't stressed enough looking at my own kind of interpretation is the neurobiology because it's it's hard to really suss out exactly what's going on. But also one thing that gets overlooked is the environment. Um, mm-hmm. People had habits in place for many years that at least allowed for that excess adiposity and its behaviors of activity level, its behaviors of structured exercise and non-exercise activity, its behaviors of eating and how you view food. You know, I mean, I almost didn't realize how much food meant for social interaction until I started wrestling. And you realize Mm -hmm. that during the wrestling season, you basically can't celebrate a damn thing. Because everything in, you know, at least in, in the environment I grew up in, every major event that you wish to celebrate, there's some kind of food or drink component. Yep. And yeah, we, we look at like, why do people struggle with, with weight loss? It's not hard to start finding reasons why the, the cards are kind of stacked against you. Of course, you want to revert back to your typical behaviors. They were your typical behaviors for a reason. You're wired to do those. 
and it's how it's how you're used to to doing things there's the energy expenditure stuff there's the neurobiology there's so much there so i'm, I'm really looking forward to uh to your talk on that in uh in spokane are you going to get into some of the neurobiology and behavioral stuff I think I'm going to primarily focus on more of kind of like the what's interventional piece. You know, I think yeah. whenever whenever I give talks to broad audiences, is I try to make it as actionable as possible. Um, and I think a lot of the a lot of the neurobiology stuff is just not super actionable. Um, I do think it I think it regulates a lot of what goes on, um, and I think there's strong data to support that. My only fear about spending a lot of time talking about that is it's super interesting, but most people can't do anything with it. Yeah, what that's going to look like is you talking, me smiling very wide, <laughs> and everyone else asleep. And just like, why did we invite Brad? Yeah, that's pretty much it. But you know, what's interesting too, is while we're on this topic, um, and something that I've been thinking about for a while, is I think a lot of times we have this view of kind of you know, metabolism, metabolic adaptation or whatever of like these, these set long-term changes, right? Is it's like, oh, I've done this and now my metabolism is this. And I start to think about it more as like, you're a living, breathing biological organism that responds to everything all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you start to think about your, your quote unquote metabolism as this kind of always shifting landscape, it starts to help you really understand what's going on better, right? So instead of thinking about it as this thing and then I diet and then it goes to this other thing, is if you think about it like it should always be adapting to what I'm doing. So if I think about it that way, I'm kind of always on this landscape of change and you're just trying to figure out where you are. Um, and I think if you start thinking about it that way, it's a lot more helpful for people. Yeah, you, you don't want to dichotomize it into my metabolism was good and now it's not. You know, it's it, it's a spectrum that you're kind of existing within. And I think you're right. The, the more that we help people understand what's happening, even if it's not really nitty gritty science, just having an under, understanding of what's happening, what what you can expect. I think that puts a lot of people's mind at ease and really helps people accomplish their goals in a it's just a less uh, stress-inducing, less scary way to do things when you, when you have some expectation. Yeah, I think the, I think the other piece is just people knowing that they're not abnormal. Yeah, definitely. Nobody wants to be abnormal. <laughs> yeah, unless you want to be the abnormal billionaire or something. And then, <laughs> then that wouldn't be a bad thing. I, I could live with that. But um, yeah, I, I participated in a study this morning that was... Um, exercise uh related there was exercise testing and they're like what are you shooting for and i said my only goal is to not be an outlier <laughs> it was a an endurance related task and endurance is not my thing so um nope. as a person who hates endurance and loves statistics my only goal was to not completely distort their data set I, I bet you were the first person to respond with that. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. What's your goal? To make the, the bell curve as beautiful and bell-shaped as possible. But I want to be on the, the higher tail because somebody has to be out there and I want it to be me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Brad, it wasn't going to be me. Not today. <laughs> not, not, not with this task. Um, well, I'll tell you what, Brad. One of the things I really like about you and the work you do is that you could – 
exist in a space well above our heads. You know what I mean? You have the intellectual horse drive and the skill set that if you were in this just to make yourself sound smart, you could do that and it'd be great for your ego probably. But the way that you convey information is so helpful. Um, It's humble and it it really is. It's for the people reading it and listening to it. Um, I love how you can take these complex ideas, boil them down and package them in a really accessible way. So um, hopefully people will come out to the Inland Empire Fitness Conference in Spokane. This might not be up by the time it happens, but catch it next year. Um, But but if people want to follow you um, and kind of keep up to date with what you're putting out and different projects you're involved with, um, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, well, thanks for the kind words, Eric. That's uh, that's probably more than I deserve. So I'll say thank you for that. And yeah, probably the best place to find me. Um, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. Just look up my name. I think there may on- be only one other Brad Dieter in the entire universe. Um, and if I ever find him, we'll take a selfie together. But I'm probably the only person that's on social media really that you can find. So just look me up there. You can find me at Eat to Perform. Um, that's where all of our kind of coaching software technology business lives. Uh, I have my personal blog, which is science driven nutrition. Uh, a new article will be released there right after the inland empire fitness conference. And yeah, that's, that's probably the best way to find me. One thing I like to ask people now you, you're, you're an evidence-based guy, um, for whatever that means. Uh, but you know, you, you, you're in touch with the science, but you also, you exercise yourself, you, you train clients, you, you help clients with dieting, I, I presume. Is there a thing you do in your own practice or working with clients that kind of flies in the face of the current evidence-based consensus? Or are there any things that you do that maybe you believe in them very strongly, but there's not really evidence to support them yet? That's a good question. You know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I think part of my thing is I don't do anything extremely radical. Mm -hmm. So like I've always kind of been the person who's focused on consistency over a long period of time. Um, and I've never seen anything that's been so crazy that I feel like I have to do or test or try. Um, so I think that's, that's maybe part of my, one of my shortcomings is I'm not like a huge take giant leaps of faith into weird things that are unknown, like grounding or supplements or weird workouts or anything like that. Um, so I don't think there's anything, I mean, I probably drink way too much coffee and do not sleep at all. Um, so that I would say that's what I do. That's incongruent with what the world tells me I should be doing. Um, but I don't have any like super weird, weird things. How much coffee is too much coffee? Um, that's an undisclosed answer. Somewhere in the neighborhood of like two pots a day, probably like a, like a 12 cup pot. Um, more like two, eight cup pots, probably. Okay, because Greg was giving me the rundown of his stimulant situation the other day, and it was it was sobering. I was <laughs> well, he's in he's in data collection mode, so he, he's in data collection mode and running two businesses. And uh, yeah, he 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 basically told me the the amount of stimulants uh, to get him out of bed, 
And uh, we, like by the time I cut him off and said, I've heard enough, we weren't even at the office yet. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's bad. Um, so, so I'm with you. I mean, it, when they came out and they're like, once it started becoming clear, you could get um, uh, genetic testing very accessibly to figure out if you're a fast or a slow caffeine metabolizer. Um, mm -hmm. Greg and I are both of the opinion. We just don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's nothing you can tell me about my genome or my physiology that's going to get between me and caffeine. So, and see my, my thoughts on that. Somebody asked me if I was going to get it done and I'm like, well, here's the two outcomes. Either one, it's going to tell me that I should not drink a lot of caffeine and I'm going to continue doing it, and I'm going to be paranoid about it. Or two, it's going to tell me I can drink a lot of caffeine, and I'm going to double what's already a, a you know abhorrent dose. So <laughs> it's kind of a lose-lose situation for my overall health. Uh, so I'm just going to be like, I just don't need to know. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that we'll be able to maybe get a cup of coffee in Spokane in a few weeks and catch up. But thank you so much for uh, for coming on the podcast today. A lot of great information. Um, if you're listening, go check out Brad's websites, go check out his social media. He puts out great content all the time. The stuff I asked him about today, it was just stuff he was rambling about on Facebook. So if you want to actually make your social media time useful, get in touch with Brad, follow Brad, uh, and keep an eye on, on what he's doing. Um, that is it for today's episode. We will see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.